I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Return of the Fizzmeister. Dun, 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 dun. And oh, return man. of that little irritating sound you make, too. Yeah, like, my, what, my voice? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another week. Uh, a very traditional Future Quake, if there is such a thing. Yeah. One thing, it's wonderful to have you back. I'm Both glad Tom. to be back, man. I'm feeling 110%. There have been major, it's been, been like, like a, a butterfly sting tea, like a tea bag protest outside. Where is Tom Bionic? We've been yeah. missing him yeah. on here. Tea party protest. So, yeah, it's, I'm so tired of hearing Tom Bionic this, Tom Bionic that. Tom Bionic saved my life, pulled me out of a burning car, blah, blah, blah. But it is good to have you back, brother. I'm happy to be here. And you know what? We have somebody else, a favorite. Who's that? Back. This week we Pyro? have our guest, well, not only Pyro, but Will Grigg, who is the host of the Pro Libertate uh, radio, blo- uh, radio show and blog, and the author of the book Liberty and Eclipse. And he's going to talk about recent experiences in the assault on personal freedom by the state, preparations to address it, and the current Christian response. Classic William Grigg stuff. How to have your best life now at the end of a nightstick. <laughs> Yeah, Tom. I can tell you're back. <laughs> Didn't get a lot of this, but it was just Doc Future. Yeah, it's very, it very mellow, very intelligent. Yeah, I hope everybody um, out there is happy. Yeah. <laughs> Plain old bland Doc Future's here with Tom Bionic. Hell out on the, wheels. Here the, we come. The wild man. Praise the Lord. The taser's gone. What? <laughs> well, the whole thing is about, you know, we're talking about this whole assault on on uh-huh. uh, uh, freedom and the Christian response. Yeah. You know, where there's one there's one side thinks that, like, yeah. you've got a nightstick people and taser them. The other side thinks that that's, yeah. you know. I'm going to have to tase you because we got to go. All right. So no further ado, here's William Grigg. Uh, it's actually a very intellectual discussion. I like what you just heard. We'll be right back for a quick wrap-up here on Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Turgid from Dinner Bionic. Well, you're just trying to show off because of our guest using some special words here. Well, I'm trying to get my licks in early because yeah, I know uh-huh. I'm going to get blasted in the late rounds. Well, Tom, it's great to have you back on our show. Yeah, happy to be back. And I guess we should introduce our special guest we have. Yeah. The reason why we're Speaking trying to, back. to try to speak on our best behavior here is that we have back one of our very favorite people, Will Grigg, who is the host of the Pro is it, I, Pro Libertate Pro Libertate. Yeah. Well, I'm always afraid I to say we had that. I thought you had a channel show on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite blogs and one I recommend everybody read, Pro Libertate, uh, and also is author of the book Liberty and Eclipse, mm-hmm. and involved in some new things right now we're getting ready to talk about. And we're going to talk about in this show, every Will Griggs show is a must-listen-to show that you should listen to over and over again. But this week we're going to talk about recent experiences in the assault on personal freedom by the state, preparations to address it, and the current Christian response. Wow, uplifting. Yeah, and uh, something a little light for this week. Some fluff. And I, I just want to tell you, Mr. Grigg, it is an honor to have you back on the Future Quake show for what I am certain will be a soul-stirring and thought-provoking show. Thank you. I'm the one who is honored. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, I hopefully you understand and grasp how highly we regard you here. And uh, we just think that uh, you're such a diamond to be on our show. And, uh, you know, 
I feel like you're always casting pearls before swine with what you share with us here. But we're so glad that you're here. And I know our listeners are just, just love to hear whatever you have to share with us and gives them a lot of food for thought. You know, since many of our longtime guests are familiar, are, are familiar with your work, our longtime listeners, uh, they've listened to you and your other shows. I'm, we're going to dispense with the, uh, regular request we have for you to review your background. And I just want to ask our listeners to go to, uh, our archive shows with you at futurequake.com and, uh, just be prepared to be blessed by your visit today. Uh, we are aware of your legacy, uh, formerly as a star writer for the John Birch Society, uh, background you probably don't relish too much, but uh, something that, that really uh, lifted your notoriety. Uh, I've also published a number of books in, that you've written and videos that you've produced, and uh, your mind-shattering and addictive pro-libertate blog site, which really should be a daily read for everybody in our listenership. Uh, however, I understand now that you've added a new element, a new di- dimension to the world of Grig, and that you are a radio star now. <laughs> Could you please tell us about the new Pro Libertate radio show and the radio network that you're on? So far, I'm a very minor luminary in the firmament that is talk radio, but I do have <laughs> a weekday program called Pro Libertate as well that's on the Liberty News Radio Network that can be accessed at uh, libertynewsradio.com. And they do have archives of all the programs from all the hosts at uh, their website. And so you can go back and in podcasting format, listen to everything that's been produced there. And as I've said before, and I've said on the radio on many occasions, I don't entirely agree with every host or every comment that is made to every host on the network. But I think that all of them have things to say that are edifying. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them has a commitment to the Constitution. And so even though we approach it from different vectors, perhaps, at least. We do have that common ground. And the Liberty News Radio Network is an upstart. It's been around for, I think, roughly a year or so. It's headquartered in Alpine, Utah, and it's the creation of a remarkable man by the name of Sam Bushman, who created a proprietary Internet software program that we can use to do remote broadcasts from anywhere there is worldwide web accessibility. And this is all the more remarkable. I don't know that Sam Bushman necessarily would like me to divulge this because he's legally blind, and yet he's a software technician, an engineer, and inventor. It's really quite amazing, astonishing thing. He's been able to marshal his gifts to provide something here that I think is a blessing for everybody who's in this business. And so I've been doing this now for, I think, about four months. We started out doing an hour-long program at 5 o'clock Mountain. It's since moved, been moved to 6 o'clock Mountain. There's been some discussion of going to two hours, but owing to the exigencies of my schedule, I just can't quite set aside two hours yet to do the program. But right. the ability that sometimes the future will go to a two-hour format. Okay. Wow. Well, uh, I assume they're trying to push you more up into the prime time, the high rating slot mm-hmm. is why they're yeah. doing that, and uh, probably more in the adult hour when uh, – you know, they they figure your content or something, you Competing know. Competing with Glenn Beck and yeah. Chris Matthews. and All this talk about freedom and liberty, they probably are afraid of young children hearing that. It would mess up their uh, yeah. their message in the public school system. <laughs> Turn the radio off. Turn the radio off. We have that. Yeah. There were thoughts in that kid's mind. <laughs> let, me, let me practice a Will Grigg answer, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Will, about your radio station. You, you, you gave a, a, a little uh, disclaimer there about... Uh, you know, not necessarily agreeing with every viewpoint that's given by every guest on that on that network, which I think is fine. But mm-hmm. I believe you also believe in freedom, in yes. that in that one that you don't feel like you have the right, any more over another citizen to tell that citizen what they should do or say. 
And secondly, their rights to be able to express as they are is is just as essential for you retaining your rights. And thirdly, you respect the listener enough that they can make discerning decisions themselves to hear all sorts of different views and decide what kind of views they think are edifying or not. That's a really good encapsulation of my approach to this. I'm one of those people who believes that we should be trying to tear windows into the souls of men. I believe it was the first Queen Elizabeth who said that, ironically enough, given that she was a monarch and an absolute monarch at that. She recognized that there was a very abrupt limit to what she could do. She didn't have jurisdiction over what went on inside of a person's heart and mind. And the modern regime that rules us today claims plenary jurisdiction over each of us in spite of the fact that in the constitutional sense, there is no warrant for the government to be policing our attitudes or policing the expression of our opinions. Now, granted, there are civil liabilities that ensue if you consciously misrepresent somebody. There are such things as libel laws. I think that they are overused. I'm of the opinion that where there are libels or defamatory expressions of opinion that are offered, I'm much more in favor of restoring the ancient tradition of dueling as a way of settling such issues (laughs) as opposed to taking somebody to court and constricting the available space for the expression of challenging opinions. Mm -hmm. But I am not of the opinion that everybody has to agree with me about the big things or even about the little things in order to be somebody with whom I'll associate in a venture that is, as you point out, is intended for an adult audience in the old and venerable sense of the expression, not the new and somewhat unfortunate sense of the expression. Adults should be able to exercise a particle of discernment when it comes to being exposed to ideas that challenge them and opinions with which they disagree. And, and they, they should have the discipline to encourage themselves to be exposed to different viewpoints. I agree with that. I uh, don't think that there's anything to be gained if you are constantly in the company of people who agree with you in every particular. The only way that any of us is going to grow more intelligent is by exposing ourselves to opinions with which we disagree, often with which we violently disagree, because that will force us to sharpen our perceptions and hone and refine the arguments that we have on on behalf of those things that we believe. And where necessary, where we run into opinions that seem to be more soundly grounded in fact and reason than our own, there's certainly nothing at all wrong. It diminishes us not at all to admit that we were wrong and to grow more intelligent by admitting that we're right, or Mm -hmm. admitting that somebody else is right and then correcting our opinions. Right. I mean, the beginning of wisdom is the the admission that we don't know something. Right. Yeah, I I think my intellectual growth was severely retarded for a number of years by just hanging around with yes people. We had a very myopic view of the world, and I had to get around people who had a completely different view. And I didn't embrace everything these different people had, but they did reorient me. In Mm -hmm. other words, it, 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 it had a deflective role in the direction. And I think, Tom, would you agree with me that the future quake experience itself has been one of that? Yeah, from what we were in so. the last couple of years. Very much so. Some of this stuff, like I was kind of online about, but man, not right. Not a whole. And bunch I assume of that process stuff. hasn't stopped. No, uh, it was it's always just, learning. It's you know what it's much like is it's 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 a lot like, um, you know, the interviews you do when you kind of go through a master's degree in in the uh, social sciences or the arts. You sit down with the world expert on X Y Z and you interview yeah. them for hours, and we do that every week. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I w- I'm, you know, I'm one of those gearhead engineer types. I wouldn't know about that. Yeah, I know. Take your word for it. Hey, I just want to mention something quick, Will, before we get into some heavy stuff. Um, I look forward to seeing you at the end of this month. Uh, you're going to be speaking at the Radio Liberty Conference, correct? Yes, I will. That uh, Stan Monteith is putting on down in California. I'm looking forward to that as well. I think awesome. this is going to be a, 
a lot of fun and a terrifically edifying experience for all of us. And uh, Dr. Future plans to be there. Uh, I hope you won't do a cold shoulder to me. I hope you're still willing to talk to me, even though important Why people on will earth be there. Why would I do that? <laughs> well, I know important people will be there, and it's sort of like when the Darlins would come into town in Mayberry. <laughs> when you see me come in, wheels all keyed up. Or I'm sort of the Ernest T. Bass of the internet radio world. So, well, I, I'll make a beeline to you and make it a priority to let you know how much I appreciate what you've done in terms of giving me a platform on your program. Well, I plan to also harass Tom Horn and even Stan Monteith as well too, and. Uh, uh, just trying to make myself conspicuous, you know. Well, but Dr. I want Stan won't mind that at all. Doctor Stan's a wonderful man. I've had some, uh, I've had the blessing of spending some time with him in person, and he is a terrific man, a wonderful Christian. Gentleman. Well, I'm I'm glad that you've had the privilege of that. I look forward to it. I just want to tell all of our listeners that uh, uh, this will be broadcast in the middle of October, but you still have time. It's it's on the 25th of October, I believe, a Sunday. Uh, in beautiful Santa Cruz area, right there on the bay, back in Tombionic country. Man, I wish I was going. To school. Yeah, I know. I actually lived in SoCal for a little while. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, boy, well, if I was going, I would show up a day early and do and surf for like 14 hours. Is that right? And then just go right to the things in my wetsuit. I would turn down surfing just to be able to hear Will stuff. Grigg talk for 14 hours. Yeah. Well, maybe we can. Without a break. The nicest compliment I've ever heard. <laughs> without, maybe we can without, even a pot, without even a potty break. <laughs> Yeah, well, I would just go. do like that astronaut did, you know, when she was driving across the country. Next topic. <clears throat> uh, I want to begin by focusing on uh, some fundamental philosophical and spiritual issues uh, you recently addressed in your blog site. Actually, it was more recent at the time that uh, we originally planned to schedule you before all Hades broke loose in your life here in the last uh, couple of months. And uh, you've been in the valley of shadow of death of just about every format in your personal health and family issues and things like that. But at the time, you had written something uh, on your blog site, and I want to talk about it because they will form a framework for a later discussion of some recent specific events that you've had in your life. And I want us to apply these philosophical and spiritual uh, ideologies that, that we'll discuss. You, 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 bless you. You recently summarized um, the wisdom that you had revealed over the years in your blog and what you've learned in, in your own studies by a simple litmus test, and that those are my words, that one can apply to oneself regarding assessing one's own personal worldview of the rights of the individual versus the state or the collective. And that is by acknowledging the assumption one immediately presumes simply when one witnesses an individual being assaulted by a law enforcement representative of the state. For example, a policeman beating up an individual on the side of the road. You're going down the car, you know, slowing down, you see a car, and you just see a policeman wailing into a guy on the side of the road. That particular scenario can shed light a window into the soul of where your thoughts really lie on what your first immediate thoughts are. Can you explain what all this is about and what it reveals about ourselves and the two classes of people that are evident from such a consideration? I think you're referring to what I call the Tom Jode test. And Tom Jode was a character, not a particularly commendable one, from Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath. As a matter of fact, when we meet him at the beginning of that book and in the movie, he's just gotten out of prison. He'd been in a bar fight and had killed a man. And because the man had tried to kill him, it wasn't considered murder. It was considered some kind of felonious homicide, but he wasn't sent to the electric chair. He was sent to prison for a number of years. He's just getting back from a stint in prison, going back to Oklahoma to visit with his family. 
and he runs into a, a lapsed preacher, and the preacher starts talking to him about the way power is organized in the world. And as a result of the exposure to this fallen preacher, who still has an element of wisdom about some of the things that he says, Tom Joad delivers this remarkable soliloquy when he's talking with his mother, and he says something to the effect of, uh, whenever you see a cop beating on a man, I'll be there. And the idea was that he would be there in the sense that he would sympathize with the person on the receiving end of the nightstick. And it occurred to me, on the basis of a number of experiences I've had talking with friends and family, and also writing about this unfortunately large supply of videotaped and otherwise recorded episodes of gratuitous police violence or outright criminal assault by people in police uniforms against innocent civilians, that you're dealing here in Tom Joad's uh, soliloquy with a, a really good moral test, which is when you see somebody on the receiving end of state violence, do you sympathize with the one wielding the baton or the one on the receiving end of the baton? And if it's the former, then I would class that attitude as being one of punitive populism, the idea being that somehow by virtue of representing the state, that the person wielding the baton is acting on behalf of all of us and keeping in mind those who, for whatever reason, are failing to conform. And so your first impulse is to believe that if the guy is getting beaten by a cop, he probably deserves it. If you're, on the other hand, somebody who sees that, and your first instinct is to ask, why are you doing this? By what right? By what authority are you beating this man? Then your impulses are fundamentally libertarian, which is to say that you associate yourself with the individual and his rights, against the supposed authority of whoever it is who is inflicting violence on him. And those two personality types are really at odds with each other, and they're both very well represented in American history. And unfortunately right now, I think that it is the former. I think that it is the personality type that I refer to as the punitive populist who's sort of in, in ascendancy. And it does tend to change depending upon one's partisan associations. There's a reliable change in the electromagnetic field of politics, if you will, when there's a Democrat in the White House as opposed to a Republican. Some of the Republicans are born-again civil libertarians, and the Democrats are the ones who stress the idea of conformity and obedience to government, whereas when the Republicans are in power, the Democrats are talking about threats to the Bill of Rights and talking about the need for us to defend the rights of the accused in all circumstances, and speaking about the virtues of nonconformity. But unfortunately, people end up in partisan circles hating the other faction more than they love liberty. And so you have that punitive populism that is distributed pretty much across the partisan political spectrum, and it takes slightly different forms. I mean, for the most part, the people on the so-called right, in whatever circumstance, are more likely to extol the idea of, of individual assertion of the right to self-defense than people on the left. And whether you're talking about um, <clears throat> a uh, period of time that's defined by Republican or Democrat rule, for the most part, the left believes that the government should have a monopoly on violence. The right doesn't believe that. The right believes, unfortunately, that the individual right to self-defense exists to supplement what the state does in the name of defending the, the country mm -hmm. and defending right. the, the powers of the government, rather than thinking in terms of trying to take away from the, the government this illegitimate monopoly on the right to use violence. It, one of the things I hope people understand is that our Constitution 
is unique in many ways, not the least of which is the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which makes it very clear, tangibly clear, that the people who wrote that document did not subscribe that the government has a monopoly on the use of force. That makes the United States a blessed anomaly in all of recorded human history because every other government, at least implicitly, and many of them explicitly, claim that monopoly. And so if you believe that the government has this innate right to use violence, non-negotiable violence, in order to compel conformity, then to the extent that you believe that, you're one of the people who'd fall into the category of punitive populist. And that, once again, is something that had become distressingly common on the right during the Bush years and is becoming more common now on the left now that Obama's in office. Let me, let me ask you, Will. Um, it seems like to me it's a balance of powers issue. Uh, you know, I, I'm new to the game and understanding some of these deep things you and some other people who've influenced me talk about. But I've started to try to grasp this idea that the reason that government is tyranny by its very nature is that it is endued with an in, inherent coercive power. It, it has the right to make laws and to force people to comply with those laws, whereas we don't have that ability ourselves. So, so the more you give the government to do, the more you're giving someone the right to have this coercive power over you and your neighbors. Now, if, if the citizenry maintains some right to use force, that, that's a balance of power even over their own government, correct? Yeah. In other words, you don't want to give every single iota of coercive force 100% over to the state. That That's basically a totalitarianism in a gulag state, is it not? That's exactly right. And we go back to Lenin, who's the most influential political philosopher, if you want to torment the word philosopher into applying to him, of the modern era, perhaps in recorded history. There are two things he said that are immediately relevant here, the first of which is his axiom that his definition of what he called scientific dictatorship, that was the ruling approach, the ruling ideology of the Soviet dictatorship that Vladimir Lenin set up, was power without limit resting directly on force. It had nothing to do with law. He made a point of saying that it would be completely unhampered by law. It rests directly on force, non-negotiable force. To a greater or lesser extent, every government today subscribes to that axiom, whether overtly or tacitly, our own government very much included in that category. The other thing he said was that the fundamental equation of politics is who does what to whom. You know, the Russian it's Kitokovo, who does what to whom or who consumes whom is another way that you can interpret that phrase. And so we get back to the idea here that if government has a monopoly on force and government is defined, the praxis of government or the the operation of government is all defined by this question of who does what to whom you obviously want to be the who rather than the whom in that equation. Mm-hmm. You want to be the pitcher and not the catcher, as it were. Right. And so you end up in a situation where people are going to become blood-lust-filled antagonists with each other because the assumption is that if the other party, if the other team ends up in, in charge of government, they're going to impoverish you, they're going to mm-hmm. eviscerate you, and they might, might very well annihilate you. That's what happens in countries like Rwanda. Right. That's what happened in the Balkans during the 1990s. And in uh, Lebanon, from time to time, we've had an eruption of that kind of mutual eliminationist violence. And there's more than a little bit right now in the American political system where people always talk about, well, for instance, just during the 2004 uh, presidential campaign that we're talking about, all these powers that have been aggregated by the Bush administration and how dangerous it would be if they fell into the wrong hands. 
The American answer to that, the American response to that is to say there are no right hands for those powers to be entrusted to right. because they're extra constitutional powers. Everything that we lend to the government by way of authority is revocable. That's something else that's unique about our system that's different from every other system of government. We're lending limited and revocable power to government on the assumption that the only purpose to which it could be put is to protect the individual rights and property of the governed. But since, oh, I'd say no later than the 1860s with the outcome of the late unpleasantness, the war between the states, there's this heretical, from the American point of view, notion of positive government that's taken root. The idea being that government can use its power to improve the lives of people, to better people's lives. That's, of course, the rhetoric that we hear coming from both of the major retail outlets for the one establishment party, both the Republicans and the Democrats, speak in terms like that. Now, is that, would that be the same thing as like saying the executioner, you know, the guy with the big black hat and the big axe, who, whose job is this unfortunate but necessary job to chop the head off the, the you know, the cattle rustlers, that we say, well, you know, this person might be ideally suited to solve our social problems. Exactly. And to solve all of these other positive moral attributes we want in our life, because he did so good at that. He, he's, he's good at, uh, you know, forcing the law and then the, the final say by, by, by martial force. Well, he would be a wonderful philosopher to help lead our society as well. <laughs> now, That's exactly right. Uh, people look on the government as a kindly uncle who dispenses gifts that are apparently costless, rather than the hooded executioner with the sharpened blade whose job it is to chop off the head of those who prove to be incorrigibly nonconformist. And by way of summarizing this in a song lyric, you probably heard the the tune by Bruce Hornsby, That's Just the Way It Is. Right. In the last verse of that song, the first the first stanza of it, if I remember correctly, goes something along the lines of, they passed a law back in 64 to give those who ain't got a little more. He's talking about the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And in that one phrase, you have a very tidy summation of the whole heresy of positivist government right. by way of democratic participation. The reason why you vote is that so you can use the government to get a little bit more, that you can marshal the coercive power of government in order to give you something that somebody else has. That, of course, is the Marxist or Leninist equation, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his perceived need, making the government, of course, the distributor here. And you want to go back to... The New Testament, in order to refute that, you might remember the the question of inheritance that was taken to the Lord, and the Lord said, who made me a divider among men? You know, I'm not here to redistribute wealth. That's not a part of the gospel program. And yet you have people who are more than willing to try to conscript, uh, in a blasphemous way, the, the name and teachings of our Lord, in order to promote something that is completely antithetical to the to the spirit of the gospel and then what uh, James calls the perfect law of liberty. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. Tom Wallach. What is a helot that Greek, you mentioned before? Greek city-state where you could go and kill the uh, kill the slaves without repercussion. Really? Yep. Wow, you're so smart. Somebody else smart is our friend Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We are in the 10-second grace period. Oh, really? Yeah, any last words? I like grace. We will talk about Will Grigg when we start. We're right. Not gossip, but good yeah. stuff uh, beginning tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope you come back for the next segment. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. I don't want to do the electron dance. Bionic. Boy, you know what? It's even almost halfway good to hear your middle names back again after being gone <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Uh, this week we have a, a, a good old trusted friend of ours, uh, Will Grigg, a brilliant man who's the host of the Pro Libertate radio show and blog and author of Liberty and Eclipse. And we're talking about recent experiences in the assault on personal freedom by the state, preparations to address it, and the current Christian response. I recommend all of you listen to the show, save it, and share it with your friends. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, before we, we cut away, what your thought was. I was blabbing on about the, uh, you know, what he talked about, about what do you first think when you see, you know, a policeman or some authority figure mm-hmm. beating up somebody on the side of the road? Well, perhaps. What's your first thought? And has it changed th- at all over time? Um, it has changed somewhat to a point. It was neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as a as a young kid, I always had uh, um, owing, I guess, to you know authority mm-hmm. problems or whatever. Were you thinking more like, hey, could I get in and steal the police car while he's distracted? Well, Is no, it was always thing? it just it's just as as growing up, I always saw police as so fundamentally dishonest in my small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were regular accusations as we were young kids that they were involved in the local drug trade. Uh, things like that. Uh, so I've always had a slight mistrust of police, but it has blossomed mm-hmm. into a beautiful lotus. <laughs> oh, no. Well, there are wonderful Christian policemen out there. I, we support there, those. There that are love. Um, I haven't met. We're, them we're yet, talking but. more fundamental about what is happening to our society, mm-hmm. and particularly Christians. We're most concerned about the attitude of Christians, mm-hmm. uh, who, who are supposed to set the example. Mm-hmm. And not that we're any kind of bastion of ultimate righteousness ourselves. Mm-hmm. we got our own problems, you and I. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be some kind of forum where we talk about some of these things and what Christians are thinking. Because mm-hmm. it sure doesn't seem like hardly any other Christian shows on the radio are talking about it. Yep. Whether we're right or wrong, they're not even talking about I it. I know. It's ridiculous. So what do you think now when you see policemen beating up somebody on the side of the road? Are you kidding? I almost, I, well, I took photos on my phone of some cop that had somebody pulled over recently. Really? Yeah, They. she had the lady... This was in a private parking lot, uh, of which I'm to understand he has no official jurisdiction uh, for moving violations because uh, inside their stop signs and such aren't, you know, they're not mm-hmm. publicly mandated. You don't have to stop. Right. And, yeah. So he's there like he's got this lady pulled over, looks like for a stop sign violation. Right. And I and as I pull around the thing, he kind of like and I didn't, yeah. you know, nobody was there, so I didn't stop. Right. Him and his partner both get out and they're like staring at me, giving right. me the hairy eyeball. Right. And uh, so I pulled up. I ended up pulling up kind of close and snapping a picture of them both with my yeah. camera phone. Yeah, you know, like that. you know what I thought? If they're doing what's legal and lawful, they should have no problem with it. You're right. But they don't like you doing that. And, in fact, sometimes the uh, policeman will tell you to stop taking pictures somewhere, whether it's legal or not. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They don't have any problem putting cameras all over 
town watching yeah. us, and their answer is, well, if you're doing things lawful, you shouldn't mind it. You're right. But they do not like the shoe on the other foot. I know. I got in. I almost got the got the the. And that's not just like the beat cop. I'm talking mm-hmm. about high level officials. I almost got officials. the business end of a of a nightstick in college because of that thing. Really? Taking yeah. a picture? Yeah. This guy had this dude pulled over, and I didn't see what transpired, so I just got out with my video camera or my my yeah. still camera rather, and was taking pictures of him. And uh, he walked over and he he said, "Turn that off right now." And I said. Well, what do you have to fear? Yeah, right. And he said, he said, you turn it off or I'm going to make you turn it off. And, you know, so I went, well, wow. all right. You know, you've been a problem for a long time. I'm, I'm sort of new at this game. There's a large file of me on a desk somewhere. Nobody told me ahead of time before yeah. I had you come in the studio. Yeah. I know, we got to go. We do have a guest, don't we? Yeah. Uh, we some guy's talking do. today. Ooh, this know. is Will Grigg. He's okay. He's pretty smart. And pretty smart. got some good words. Mm-hmm. And no, uh, it's something that's unforgettable, what you hear him say. No further ado, here's Will Grigg from the Pro Libertate radio show and blog, and we'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quake. After the Lord established our church, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the members of the early church were uh, encouraged to mm-hmm. voluntarily share their goods with each other in a local church and also when there was need because of famine, but it was yeah. a voluntary sharing. I don't remember reading anybody was going to be excommunicated or somebody, a group from Antioch was going to forcibly take some food from Thessalonica at gunpoint and yeah. go distribute it to Jerusalem. That's exactly right. They mm. appealed to the inherent goodness, whatever limited it might be. But but the key is, where do you think goodness lies? Is there more goodness inherent in these people that we elect to set in political office or in the average person on the street? <laughs> I would dare say that the probably the most criminal element on the side of the street probably has a higher quotient of generosity than most of the people that we have set in office. Because the people who set in office usually have made, not all, but mostly have made deals and cut deals to others' detriment just to get that spot to begin with, even mm-hmm. just in campaign contributions. So they sort of played their cards. I don't mean to color all of them, but, but you know, that's... A lot of them are tainted goods already, just getting there. But I, I wanted to mention something in closing on this point, because that, this fundamental story you told about what's your first thought when you see a guy getting clubbed on the street by somebody with a costume and a badge, as you often refer to him, uh, hit me at the core, because it was so fundamental and so simple, it reminded me of the kind of stories that Jesus might tell oh, to, wow. to help people to search mm. in their heart. You know, And I thought about the Good Samaritan and how yeah. much... It, the, the story wasn't so much what the story revealed about the characters, it would, what it revealed about the listeners. And so as, as the he's telling about the people who are walking beside the road and seeing the Samaritan beat up on the road, you, you can immediately understand that, that the wheels were turning in the listeners. Some of the religious leaders saying, well, of course he stepped around him and probably thought he was a no-good uh, Samaritan and probably had been stealing somebody and Somebody mm-hmm. gave it to him, or so, you know, he if he's a Samaritan. He must have been up to no good. It's best to stay clear. There probably mm-hmm. something else bad's going to happen to him. But yet there was one person who came along. It didn't make any of those suppositions. They just saw a need and they addressed it, treated him as an individual, and and that's sort of what I saw in this 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 metaphor, this picture that you painted, is that it really says what we see about us, and and I'll have to tell you, a couple of years ago. I would have been in the crowd. For example, if we'd seen uh, protesters at a G20 meeting or something like that. You would have been man on the sound gun? <laughs> well, I would have been man on the sound gun, but when I'd watched it on TV, in the in the two minutes of time that I would have even cared about it, 
I would have said, boy, those they need it. Boy, they, they just need to go get a job. You know, they lose a few teeth. Maybe they'll get back and get their life straightened out. Well, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be vindictive. I mean, I would. My, that may be a little harsh on me. but Yeah, I don't think you have a vindictive bone in your body. I wouldn't be very sympathetic <laughs> to these people. Yeah. And, in fact, they may need to get a job. You know, I, I, I don't know those details. But uh, I would look at it with the presumption that if, if someone with the badge on is hitting somebody else, then they really needed it. And it wasn't until I began to be educated by your blog, by some other people we've had contact with, even guys like Alex Jones, people like Stan Monteith and others, that I started to realize the rest of the story that I willingly ignored said that something different's going on. And, of course, when that baton's going across your own nose or forehead, you have a different view of the world. And it'd be nice <laughs> if we got that understanding before it came to that point. Uh, you know, we, well, we've had people who've been treated like that on our show and yeah. have paid the price for it. And it's funny that after you had this event, you you personally and your family experienced some of this, which I which I hope to cover a little bit. Mm-hmm. But but this is the one thing. If there's anything in this show I want people to understand, is to think about what is going on in your heart when you see someone being beat up like that. Do you immediately assume, as you said, and and that's what's the power of these thoughts, is that it takes a whole lot of complicated thoughts that you share and boils it down to something we can get your arms around. When, when you see someone in authority and power using physical violence on somebody, do you immediately suspect, has this person done everything in their power to avoid this confrontation, and are they following legal precedent to protect the rights of this person? Or are you thinking the quicker they can beat them up and get them out of here, the better? And I would say most most Christians, I believe, would fall in the latter stage. Most evangelical, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians would fall in the fact whether it's whether it's people in Palestine or whether it's people in other parts of the world or Iraq or people in our own country that are different than us, the quicker they can get beat up and thrown in the waistband and get out of our face, the better. We might leave them a Bible tract after it's over. Yeah. But but for the most part, that's the thinking. And then we go to church and tell everybody how much we love God and how much we love people and want to see all people saved after we've disposed of them. Talk about how deep, like, it's funny because if you go back and look even... 40 or 50 years to uh, international uh, pastorships and stuff, you have people like Pastor Niemuller who wrote that great now infamous yeah. poem, uh, you know, mm-hmm. basically warning us about exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even more recently, uh, you'll, have, you'll have people talk in glowing tones about uh, um, uh, um, Niebuhr and, and all these other guys who went to Germany and, uh, you know, gave their lives for these causes of Christ. Um, right. In the face of this sort of police action, and uh, they'll they'll praise these people with one uh, with one breath, and then mm-hmm. failed Tom Joe test right. going to lunch. <laughs> so the question really is: when you see something like this, which person do you turn to and say, "How dare you"? Yeah. Which exactly. person do you address that to? And and you may find out you don't know the whole story. The egg may be on your face or maybe extenuating circumstances. But your first inclination is to turn to someone with outrage and say, how dare you do that? Either it's how dare you defy this authority figure or how dare you use violence on this person uh, like this. Uh, you by had, by you, what authority do you do this? Exactly. One thing, yeah, Colorado. The other thing that I need to point out here that <clears throat> is – a very important insight that is not original with me is that the second great commandment, you know, the golden rule, which is basically the same moral injunction from our Lord, that uh, we love our neighbors as ourselves, or that we do unto others as we would have done to us, 
requires that we look upon our neighbors as being everybody as valuable, everybody as indispensable as we are. Each of us is indispensable to himself. We can't mm-hmm. replace ourselves. And we should understand that God looks on each of us that way, and he expects each of us to look upon the other that way. And if you have that perspective on people who surround you, and as believers, we're required to. I mean, this is a commandment. This is not an option. We're required to have that perspective. Then if you see somebody on the receiving end of government violence, then your first impulse really should be to think, okay, how would it be for me if I were on the receiving end of the baton? as opposed to thinking how would it be for me if I were the delivering end of the baton. Because if you take a look at the examples used by the Lord, as you point out in the parables, take a look at the history of the early church. These are men who were acquainted with the inside of jails. They were acquainted with injustice in the form of physical violence inflicted upon them under the color of legal authority. Everything about Christianity in terms of its origins dictates that we sympathize with the people who are on the receiving end of what the government does. And our Constitution also requires that the government justify that violence. The entire point of having a written constitution is to restrain the government on the assumption that the government is going to be at all times and in all places the biggest threat to our life, liberty, and property. Now, now taking this a step of just looking at two individuals on the road and looking at institutions or groups, wouldn't the next step be what your first inclinations are regarding motives? Because when you see groups form that have a certain view Let's say the political opinion may be different than yours. They have a different worldview, and certainly as Christians, there are many, many groups that differ from our worldview in the yeah. world. And when you look at them, is your first thought to say, uh, I distrust what they're up to. I, dis- I distrust where they're going with this. Something needs to be done to stop them. Or is your thought, I distrust the government institution that by its very nature and course of force will tend to stop all expressions of opinion that are different than the status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing I like to point out to people is that I don't believe that the government has ever been authorized, the civic government, that is to say. I'm talking specifically about the political government that would be exercising physical coercion. Has there been, exerc- has there been authorized by the government to punish heresy? There are people who are serious and committed Christians of different traditions than the one that I adhere to who believe that the civil magistrate is empowered by God to punish heresy. I don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I don't find that anywhere in the teachings, the first person teachings of Jesus Christ, the founder, the author and finisher of our faith, that would I don't find anything that would justify the assumption that the civic the civil magistrate has that authority. And the same thing applies in terms of politics. What I like to tell people is that I'm not anti-communist in the sense that I want to see communism abolished. I don't want to see communism become the ruling ideology of any government that claims jurisdiction over me. If people want to live a communal order, they should feel free to do so. Find a place, set up a community, knock yourself out. Just don't try to compel me and my family to be part of it. Now, what becomes a little bit complicated here, because in historic terms, the tendency of communal, that is to say politically communal or or communitarian political experiments, tend to commingle their ambitions with the power of government and they become expansively intolerant of any contending economic or political system. As long as there's a contrary example involving individual freedom, 
then collectivists will always try to use the power of the government to stamp that down. But, they, but they want did, a monopoly. Didn't you just hit, say the key point, though? Whoever it is, communist or whoever, if they reach for the hand of coercive power yes. of the state, that is a litmus test to ring the alarm bells. And it exactly. may even may That's even be your fellow Christians. It may be in your fellow exactly. Christians. When they reach for the handle of coercive power, that's when they have become a danger to yeah. you. And the same thing holds true, I think, with respect to racial collectivism or what a lot of people call racism. Racism is a word that's really been deprived of any meaning. It's really it's it's a word that's had the sense beaten out of it because it's applied so reflexively to things that manifestly have nothing to do mm-hmm. with using the power of government to impose some liability on somebody because of an accident of birth, which is what we're talking about here. But if you're talking about people who parade around in the regalia of the Third Reich or in hooded costumes, uh, shouting things that are offensive to people of non-white ethnic backgrounds, as disagreeable as that is, I don't think that's a big problem until and unless they once again reach for the power of government and try to create some kind of a collectivist order based upon shared identity or an ex- exclusionary or even eliminationist view with respect to those who don't belong to their cohort. So once again, as you point out, the threshold question is, do these people seek to enlist the coercive power of the state? And at the point that they do, irrespective of what their ideology or what their theology might be, they become troublesome to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And we sow the seeds of our own destruction when we, we make it so tantalizing to take yes. those power by, by embedding so much power within the state that is totally unnecessary. The power over educating our children, the power over defining the arts, the power over all of these aspects of our life, energy policy, whatever you name it, anything except just basically defending the rights of one person's goods over another. Anything exactly. that goes beyond that, we make it so tantalizing that, that we actually t- sort of tie our own noose, so to speak. And that we make it so valuable for people to want to get it. If we, if we leave the state in the function of basically just picking up the garbage and doing the bare minimum things to keep society from, from collapsing, uh, if, if we make it like that, then, then people aren't going to be as enticed to want to take over those kind of ranks. Yeah, and, if, and if they're required by law, as the Constitution should, if, perp- if properly interpreted, as it should dictate, they're required by law to use their power only to defend the rights everybody, including the people with whom they most vehemently disagree, then it really doesn't become such a glittering prize. I mean, really, if you win an election, the only thing that you've won is the duty of making sure that the rights of the people you disagree with are protected. That really is the objective of having a constitutional system of government. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's not the way it's worked, but that's the aspiration. Mm-hmm. No, no agenda. There should be no room for agendas. No room for your vision for this or that. It's just to sort of like the sheriff, you know, back at the jail, to mm-hmm. sort of maintain the peace, to make sure everybody keeps their mitts off other people's stuff. And once you turn your, t- your your tour, you hand the keys over to the next person coming in, and that's that's really all it should be scoped to do. At least as I've understood your teaching. Uh, now l- let me ask you about a different topic. Um, you talked a little bit about the view of Americans versus people in other countries. And, of course, we live, and particularly I speak on behalf of most evangelicals, that we know we're far more moral and superior than other people in the world. Because (laughs) on TV, we talk about it all the time. We talk about all of those people in other parts of the world and how immoral they are and how brave we are. We need to bomb them. And how basically the world would fall apart if we weren't here. Um, But how do Americans, based upon your data you've published in the past, how do they compare 
today with the citizens of other countries regarding their support for torture. I think this is a next step beyond coercive power. This this is when power gets so deep seated that it gets uh, uh, sadistic. Uh, exactly. So so how do they compare people in other parts of the world with us here in the U.S. of A. The first thing we should understand, of course, is that torture is never about extracting information from somebody. Torture is never a method of interrogation. Torture is a means of dehumanizing somebody in a way that even murder does not accomplish. What you're doing when you're torturing somebody is you're reducing that person to a while not allowing him the release of death. It's meant to break the will of another human being. It's meant, it's meant to make that human being the property of whatever agency is authorizing the torture. Whether you're talking about the Grand Inquisitor during the Spanish Inquisition, or whether you're talking about somebody who worked for the NKVD, the KGB, the Public Security Bureau in Communist China, or the CIA today, the whole objective of torture is to destroy the individual will, is to destroy that which makes the individual human, fully human. And any institutionalized torture, any government that would lend its imprimatur to the practice, really is rebelling against one of the fundamental ten Christian worldview, which is that you have to see the image of deity, the image of God in every human being. And so at a, at a fundamental level, when a government institutionalizes torture, it's really rebelling against God's sovereignty. And bear in mind, this is something I never tire of repeating to people who are equivocal on the subject, who profess to be followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one, the one being in the universe who has the right to issue laws is Jesus right. Christ. Now, you will recall that Jesus was tortured. He was exactly. tortured by iniquitous men before exactly. he was put... He wasn't put to death by torture. He surrendered his life. It was not theirs to take. It was his to give. But he was tortured. The cross was a Roman method of execution inspired by the Assyrians, the Assyrians being one of the nastiest uh, regimes in, in mm -hmm. pre-Christian history, that was meant to put people to death by torture. And I don't for the life of me understand how somebody who professes to believe in Jesus of Nazareth could believe that he would authorize the torture of any human being. It just doesn't make sense. Well, well, people, Christians I mean, can go, you know, they, they can watch the, the, the uh, Passion of the Christ in a movie theater, tears streaming down their face. Exactly. Seeing the suffering of Christ there, you know, during the whipping and all these kind of things. Go home and watch a TV show that night where you see guys with, with badges on on our side doing some of the same kind of things to people and just say, go get them. Get them, Bubba. Exactly. Name is Jesus. What the, they're, missing, they're missing the point there, and that is that we put Jesus in that position. Each of us individually did that. I did that to Jesus. Right, you see, right. I, I'm to blame. It's my fault that he was tortured. You see, that's the burden I live with as a believer. And I can understand why other people who, who profess to believe in Jesus Christ and understand grace can't understand that. And look at looking at that, looking at what we did individually and in the aggregate to our Lord can then somehow countenance that being done to another human being. I just don't understand that. But having laid the, the foundation here, there have been a number of surveys taken, both domestically and internationally, and I'll just paraphrase the results here, regarding the attitudes both of various cohorts of people here in the United States domestically and then comparing the population of the United States against the population of other countries in the world regarding the question of torture. Domestically, the single highest favorable rating toward torture, that group of people most inclined to endorse torture as a method of interrogation are evangelical Christians. Internationally, when you compare the reaction of the United States to other countries, 
the United States comes off very, very poorly because with the exception of a couple of countries in the Muslim world, the population of the United States is more favorably inclined toward torture than the population of any other developed country on Earth. The population of England, actually, in the poll that was published by The Economist magazine a number of months ago, ranked the highest of people who rejected torture. China, its population ranked higher than that of the United States, as did the population of Turkey. I mean, these are countries, that uh, China and Turkey, that are not looked upon as havens of due process and respect for individual liberty. But their populations, perhaps because of the experience that they have had on the receiving end of this violence, don't endorse torture with the sense of glib moral self-satisfaction that Americans do. And as I pointed out in a radio commentary I did on this subject, I said this more or less spells amen to the conceit of American exceptionalism because we were supposed to be the proverbial shining city on the hill. We were supposed to be the moral exemplars of the world. We have a constitution, the Eighth Amendment, to which outlaws the use of cruel and unusual punishment. That's punishment being inflicted on people convicted beyond a reasonable doubt of serious crimes. The government cannot use torture to punish those people. It stands to reason that the government, by virtue of the same constitutional principle, cannot use torture in order to interrogate those people. I mean, the Fifth Amendment, protection against self-incrimination, one of the very important understandings embedded in that is that the government cannot use coercive or, or, or pain-inducing means in order to get somebody to admit to a crime himself. And yet we have people, once again, who profess to be Christians and to revere the Constitution and to be patriots of the, a type that the Founding Fathers would recognize, in many instances enthusiastically support the practice of torture against those who are designated arbitrarily to be enemies of the government. There's a horrible case that was just given some publicity over the last couple of weeks of a man from Kuwait, father of four, he was an aid worker, he's never had any affiliation with terrorist organizations or, or radical Muslim groups, who was in Afghanistan in the region of Tora Bora in 2002, he was interrogated, that is to say he was questioned, he wasn't tortured, interrogated by a CIA intelligence analyst in 2002 who concluded that he was completely innocent of any involvement with terrorism, and yet he was kept and sent to Gitmo and subjected to torture, including sleep deprivation. That's a preferred method of KGB interrogators. There's nothing at all funny or, or light or whimsical or trivial about sleep deprivation. It can kill you very quickly, it can destroy mm -hmm. your mind. He was subjected to other modalities, most likely including waterboarding and stress positions, both of which have long pedigree, once again, in, in the annals of communist torture. The reason, in spite of the fact that he was known to be innocent for seven years, he was detained at Gitmo and routinely tortured in order to provide false testimony against other detainees. This was done by our, quote-unquote, government during the reign of a president who professes to be an evangelical Christian, and it was loudly supported. All of these methods were loudly supported by the evangelical church. You want to talk about a scandal on the body of Christ? We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, I'm a problem child, bionic. Yes. Aren't you so proud that evangelicals, Americans and evangelicals, lead the way in supporting torture? It's right there in the Bible. Should that tell us anything, you think? Third Corinthians, and thou shalt yeah. toast them with the electron stick. Yeah, I forgot that one. You've been reading on them funny Bibles. Thou, yeah, it's the Jeffersonian. It's, it's mm -hmm. that new conservative Bible that they're putting mm -hmm. out. Have you heard about that? No. 
But you'll have to save it for tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, funny guys, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us here at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We really got to go. All right, let's get out of here. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great being with you. Till tomorrow, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, never at a loss for words, Bionic. Boy, and that the truth. That, uh, they've all been pent up because I've been gone for two Even weeks. Even your middle name was never Should a loss for words. It's like yeah. an auctioneer. I, 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 it pains me to say people have been missing you. <laughs> Sorry, man. They never said that about me. They yeah. never say, where's Dr. Future been? We've been really missing him. Well, I know, because that. they've all got you like on their iPods, pictures up in their room. Uh, pictures, of, yeah, with darts yeah. through it. Poster. DHS you know? has pictures of me. Uh, this week, uh, we're talking to Will Grigg, the host of the Pro Libertate uh, radio show and blog, and author of the book Liberty and Eclipse. Uh, and this is the third segment today of our interview talking about recent experiences and the assault on personal freedom by the state, preparations to address it, and the current Christian response. Mm-hmm. And Will was probably, arguably, arguably the most intelligent person comes on our show, would you say? I mean, near the top. I don't know. I'm pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, and it certainly shows in everything you say. Uh, but, I mean, we, we have lots of intelligent people on our show. Yeah. But, I mean. Will is the, if, Will is the man who I would not want to get in a, uh, in a uh, uh, verbal pugilist match with because yeah, like if I was in debate like club, it'd be yeah. like me versus him in debate club. Yeah, he's like a like a ninja when it comes to the art of the uh, you know the pen being mightier than the sword. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the thing when you uh, was it get skunked? Is that the thing in baseball when if they score fifteen runs or something like that they call it a game? I don't, uh, know. I don't know, but that's I, what would happen that. to me in a debate with yeah. with Will Grigg. I'd get yeah. get skunked and they'd call it early. Yeah, you know, well, ladies and gentlemen, you'll get to enjoy it yourself. Uh, we're we're going to talk about a number of new topics here. We've talked about uh, Christian views toward uh, torture. Um, how do we look at the rights of the individuals as a Christian? And I want you to think about what he says uh, in this talk. And we'll be right back with a whole lot of things to say here on Future Quick. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure a lot of your major evangelical ministries that are well-financed and have a lot of airtime. I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of them protesting this torture and <laughs> saying how counter it is the call of Christ and have probably deviated from a lot of their, you know, your best life now kind of talks to <laughs> to focus on the poor suffering of these people. Have you heard a lot of that from evangelical ministries? Well, sometime in, in my reveries when I'm imagining a better world than the one we're living in, yeah, I've heard that kind of thing. But in the world <laughs> that is too much with us, 
I've yeah. never heard yeah. that kind of a sermon we, coming from a major evangelical figure. We have a well-to-do show that comes on for about three hours every day before us, for profit. And and their Christian message is, we better hurry up and kill all those people in the Middle East before they kill us. Mm. I, I'm paraphrasing, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but that's the message. It's a glorification Eric of Prince's America. warrior of the week uh, yeah. coming in and glorifying the Spartan nature of America. And we've got to kill these Islamo-fascists, and we hang a label around their neck because, you know, they're all lockstep. You're talking a quarter of the earth, and every one of them just sleeps every night wanting to kill Americans. <laughs> according to what of an incontinent urge to go out and slit the throats of those who don't make Islam. By way of a contrary example, can I offer just one very quick anecdote? When I was sent to Egypt in 1994 to cover the United Nations uh, Population Control Conference, what a wonderful idea it was to hold a conference on population control <laughs> in the capital of a Muslim nation, right, right, right across from Al-Azhar University, where most of the mullahs were being trained and marinated in anti-Western hatred. You had this congress of population control coercionists who wanted to dispatch missionaries from Planned Parenthood and Marie Stokes International into these Muslim countries in order to to dispense with the traditional family structures that existed in those countries. And of course, that's when you make people mad enough to go out and kill you and at the price of their own lives is necessary is when you start attacking their families. But when I was in Cairo, I made the acquaintance of, a, I believe he's a Pakistani doctor by the name of Majid Khatma. He lives in England. He's a very friendly man, very humble. He's the head of the Muslim Physicians for Life, which is a pro-life organization. It's international. And during a press conference that was held there at the Cairo International Conference Center at this meeting, Dr. Kotna gave a lengthy and very impassioned, very eloquent address condemning abortion, condemning population control, coercive population control, as well as just the, the subtle seduction of trying to destroy families on the assumption that by doing so that you'll have fewer children to deal with. And he said one line that resonated with every Muslim in the room, and that the room was packed with people who are mostly Muslim. He said, for Muslims, God is the only population controller. And that drew a huge ovation from the crowd, and the Muslim journalists were applauding. And I turned to another American sitting next to me, and they said, you know what, we're in trouble. Because these people understand something that the purportedly Christian West has abandoned about the way that uh, the earth was made to be populated, as Isaiah mm -hmm. said. The thing about Dr. Kotna, I ran into him in Copenhagen a few months later, I ran into him in Washington, and we seemed to be running to each other all over the place. When that execrable, blasphemous motion picture, The Last Temptation of Christ, came out in 1988 and had its debut in London, this man, who was a Muslim, who does not believe in the divinity of Christ, but who reveres him as a prophet, went and protested that film. And in the course of doing so, he and the, he wrote a letter to the local newspaper condemning this attack on the Christian faith. There was one other letter. This is England. This is England, remember. One other letter condemning that film for attacking the Christian faith. It was also written by another Muslim. And every time I spoke with this man, he would say, when to Jesus of Nazareth, peace be upon him. Now, he is wrong as a Muslim about salvation. He's wrong mm -hmm. about who God right. is and, what, and who, what God requires of us. Right. But you know what? This is not somebody who is lusting to put women in burqas and slit the throats of infidels. This is somebody who's trying to save babies, and this is somebody who, in spite of the fact that he's hostage to a man-made and false religion, has a great deal of reverence for Jesus, and he appreciates those who follow Jesus as people of the book. So there's something really overbroad and tragic about saying that this quarter of the Earth's population is made of an undifferentiated mass of savagely bearded fanatics 
who spend every waking minute and most of their dream time as well lusting to kill us. It simply isn't true. But so we all, used, sorry. Well, we have to make them monsters. Otherwise, how could we have a good conscience while we torture them? There you go. Inhuman. We have to make them inhuman so then we can do inhuman things to them. And make them That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's very important. Of course, you know, I was still thrown by your initial comments on torture about uh, the, the fact that torture is intended to dehumanize people. Are you trying to tell me that when we take uh, these prisoners and strip them naked and have dogs that, that try to bite their private parts and we stack them up with sacks over their head and pyramids oh, and, and do these things. You're saying that was trying to dehumanize people? I, I thought we were trying to defend American morality and, and Christian morality by doing things like that. Well, you know, what will happen is that when you, when you take that approach to this issue, people who are devoted to militarism as their real religion will probably fling in your face some uh, slow child's paraphrase of Orwell's observation <laughs> about the uniforms that guard, you know, that there are, that uh, we are able to sleep in our, our beds in peace right. because, because stern men are willing to, to do terrible things in order to hold off the barbarians. The problem, of course, becomes, you know, who's going to guard the guardians? Who's going to watch the watchmen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, when, and the thing about torture is that it not only dehumanizes the target, it dehumanizes the person who inflicts it. Okay. This is something Vladimir Bukovsky pointed out. Vladimir Bukovsky was a Soviet dissident who, when he was taken off to the Sykuska, the Soviet psychiatric gulag in 1968, I was told by the KGB as they handcuffed him that the handcuffs he was wearing had been made in the United States. But he spent <laughs> year after year being wow. tortured in the Soviet psychiatric gulag and kept his mind intact because he has an indomitable sense of humor. He's a wonderful man. He wrote an anguished pleading editorial in 2005 in the Washington Post in which he begged America not to institutionalize torture because among the radiating consequences of that act would be the creation of an entire generation of police and military people who were completely morally fouled up. You'd have you'd have people who'd become fully functioning psychotics because of what they had done to other people and the changes that would take place in their personalities as a result and the damage that would be done to families, the damage that would be done to communities and society at large is something that would take generations to cure if we ever would fully get out of the moral slump that would end up in. Well, well, speaking on that, do you remember the recent event just recently of the uh, policeman who pulled over the ambulance and the paramedic came out and said that that there was an emergency or somebody on board and the the policeman went and began choking the paramedic? Yes. And the answer later, you know, the the person was... uh, you know, they covered for him. They covered for the policeman who was doing this. They put him on some administrative leave. But their answer was he had just gotten back from Iraq. Yes. And that he hadn't totally sort of gotten out of the, the I guess, the mindset, you know, uh, that that's the way business was done over there. And we have people coming in mass, wonderful people, sent over, wonderful, devoted, God-fearing, want to serve their country, protect us, who have been subject to doing this door-to-door-to-door. And, and there's been plenty of wonderful things down there, too. I know soldiers have tried to help people and things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when these people come back who have been forced by their superiors to do these things, they now are taking job in local law enforcement. And I expect we're going to have events in mass like that little vignette I just explained, but on a mass scale. Where it, it's almost as if people have been purposely indoctrinated to have, to have their, their inhibitions lowered by this and conveniently found them a place to serve. I know I sound very conspiratorial, but but can you see it all where I'm coming from with this? Oh, definitely. And that's a major and abiding concern with me, and it has been since this this fool's errand into Iraq six years ago. One of the things I pointed out is that the population 
of people involved in this protracted occupation, it's a military occupation, that's one thing that people need to understand. We should never be an occupying power. If we were a republic, we would never be an occupying power. But the logic of military occupation means that you confront a 360-degree battlefield, mm-hmm. more or less in perpetuity, as long as you were there. And the other side wins if they simply hang around, because there's the assumption that eventually you're going to leave. And if they stay, they win. Right. And in the meantime, they have the initiative. And so that creates a situation that is going to change the mind and the psychology of every individual who's put into it as an occupation soldier. And these, of course, are people who are, by and large, with National National Guard and Reserve Forces who are in law enforcement jobs here domestically. And when they go back, they retain that, that perspective on how power is supposed to be organized and exercised. But there's another element of this story that really disturbs me as well. It's something I wrote about in my book, Liberty and Eclipse, and that is that many of the methods being used in the occupation were actually field tested here by some law enforcement agencies. The first place I ever saw the expression clear and hold with respect to the occupation and management of entire sections of a urban residential area was in a, in a law enforcement initiative in, in the Bay Area of California in 1999 as part of the so-called War on Drugs. And if you go back to the Philippine occupation after the Spanish-American War of 1898, the Philippine occupation took place for a number of years thereafter, and over 100,000 Filipinos were killed. That's where the so-called water cure, what we now call waterboarding, was first employed on a widespread basis. There are actually a few soldiers prosecuted for it as a, as a war crime. But the, the general, the commanding general who authorized this, had actually used the water cure during his time as a police commissioner in New York City. And it was something that had actually been pioneered here mm. as a law enforcement method, as a third-degree method, before being taken over to the Philippines and used as a method of interrogation and torture in order to extract information from captured Filipino rebels. Same kind of thing has happened with a number of other initiatives that have been taking place now where there's this commingling, this very dangerous commingling of technologies and attitudes uh, both uh, in terms of domestic law enforcement and foreign military occupation. Look at the LRAD technology that was just used in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just had of, that in our news story uh, this past Friday. Yeah. We just did a story about, you know, it was sold to be used on those Islamo-fascists trying to kill all of our troops. Yeah. That's how we were sold to actually pay the millions of dollars to develop it. And what do you know what shows up on our street being used against uh, Anne Harriet down the street? Yeah. Another talking about uh, another active denial system that's a very popular euphemism for a, a so-called less lethal technology, which means that it's a technology that will take longer to kill you than a bullet would, which is pretty much how the taser operates, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, the, the new active denial system would use an infrared laser in order to give a, a topical sensation of being burned without supposedly creating the type of skin damage that could occur. But that same technology, of course, can blind people very easily. Mm-hmm. And given what's happened with the increasingly promiscuous use of tasers now and the fact that we have an accumulating body count that's the result of the use of this supposedly non-lethal technology, there's no doubt in my mind that the infrared laser, assuming that it becomes widely deployed, and there's a good reason to assume that because the Department of Homeland Security is putting out all kinds of money for local police departments to buy this technology, I don't doubt for a second that this infrared laser technology is going to make itself properly notorious as well, because most likely over the next few years we're going to hear stories about the needless 
uh, sadistic use of LRAD and, and infrared laser technology mm-hmm. that would be as commonplace as the taser horror right. stories that we hear now. Well, I'm sure, you know, if they wanted real lethal technologies, they would just uh, give these guys syringes full of swine flu vaccine. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if they would be fast enough. That's the only down thing. It takes time, you know. They, they cover their tracks. It's like these long-term poisons the Russians would give guys where it would yeah. take just long enough that you couldn't trace where they got it. And exactly. that, that's how the vaccines work. But let, let me just say in conclusion, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, if I understand this, we don't get ourselves in a situation where we have to occupy places and be surrounded, make these compromises or be tempted to, unless we're an empire. Yeah. Empires have to go to other lands and sort of take over and bully their way around and coerce other people around. Republics stay home, trade with other people, and mind their own business at home. So, exactly so, right. so they're not. Say so they don't put themselves in a position just like how we were in Vietnam. Uh, the the, the Malay massacre would not occur had we stayed uh, at home. Yeah. Uh, we'd have a lot more people around here if they hadn't believed a a, a falsitude about uh, the Gulf of Tonkin that we've now established was a complete fabrication. That's right. uh, at the cost of tens of thousands of our lives. But I just want to make sure I understood that. Let, let me. I, I, there's one essential area I want to talk to, since you, you skirted around this uh, about occupying force, uh, and and I want to go and not talk about these uh, the, the dreaded arch enemies of evangelical Christianity in America, the Islamofascists. I want to talk about one of the favorite sons of uh, evangelical Christianity. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Eric Prince, who is the CEO of the private mercenary security group Blackwater, and he's been in the news a lot recently. We've been trying to follow it here. Uh, he's been indicted in a federal case. Uh, per my, both of you correct me if I state this wrong. And has been accused of the murder of a number of former co-workers, or excuse me, accused by a number of former co-workers, uh, under oath and official court affidavits and testimony of having performed several crimes, including the illegal smuggling of arms into Iraq, random killing of Iraqi civilians, and the recruiting of those with documented mental instabilities that would support such behavior, and even the initiation of child prostitution in Iraq to provide services for his more aggressive employees. And it has been testified to the effect uh, that he has said he has been called by God to kill as many ragheads as possible as a Christian crusader. And his workers actually use medieval crusader code words uh, in support of that. He's been accused of trying to kill those employees who've tried to testify against him. And it's also been reported that, and, and I think this has been well established per my research, that he and his parents founded and provide a large amount of funding for the Council on National Policy, which is the Christian, evangelical, conservative Christian version of the Council on Foreign Relations, as has been described. Yeah. Uh, a very secretive group that defines policy for the religious right as well as a number of other well-known evangelical ministries. Uh, I've seen evidence to suggest he's actually on the board of directors and Focus on the Family. Uh, I have seen no comments from Focus on the Family or any other evangelical groups about this association with him or any comment on these accusations that have been in the news about him. If these are proven true in court, and he, he, you know, he'll have his day in court, no matter how many witnesses come forward, what does this say about our country and its leadership, including the uh, parachurch evangelical ministries? Well, to take the last part of that question and answer it first, what it says is that there is a serious lacuna, well, a serious gap in the understanding of the commandments governing 
the sanctity of life from the perspective of those evangelical leaders and, and parachurch ministries that support this type of activity. And there's also really a serious lack of historical understanding here regarding the Crusades, for one thing, and the role that corrupt ambition and political agendas played in the historic Crusades. I mean, they're trying to say, Mr. Price, assuming that he's been quoted accurately about his standing as a supposed crusader, he's trying to say, well, God wills it. You know, Deus le volt, as Pope Urban said, as they get involved in what has to be considered a really stupid and self-defeating policy here of rallying up a quarter of the world's population needlessly against uh, the West when uh, really we should be preaching the gospel. And preaching the gospel doesn't involve killing as many quote-unquote ragheads as possible. If you're a real Christian, why would you want to be sending unredeemed souls to hell? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And they're also apparently proceeding from another heretical belief that was very common and very and preached very widely during the Crusades, which is this whole idea of supererogation, the idea that some of us can draw on some kind of surplus value in excess of what's necessary for salvation in order to justify doing things that otherwise would be considered both crimes and very serious sins. And there seems to be this belief that an abundance of militaristic or jingoistic zeal will cover a multitude of sins, including <laughs> the most important ones here, you know, the sins yeah. of murder. And it is deeply troubling to me, but it's entirely predictable given the, the role, once again, the corrupt ambition plays in all this, that people can convince themselves that as long as they're focusing this type of murderous attention on people whose beliefs we abhor and whose lifestyles strike us as something less than civilized, that somehow that's all right. And once again, take a look at the that our Savior associated with in mortality. He's, he was at the margins. He was talking to the sick. You know, he was talking to those who were considered irredeemable because as a pastor at the service I attended on Sunday pointed out, the fundamental gospel message is that we're all broken people and that we can only be fixed through the grace of Jesus Christ. It, we're not going to be fixed through the proper application of militaristic force. You know, we're not going to be fixing the world by subjecting it all to the will of people who consider themselves to be more righteous than the rest of us, because we're all broken people. And mm -hmm. if you have that understanding to begin with, I don't see how you could possibly be endorsing this kind of well, Mr. Well, Mr. Prince and his group have been involved in. Well, well how do you explain the absolute silence of these these high-level Christian ministries that have these associations and their, their total silence of any kind of concern or comment about these activities going on? I think a lot of it is a somewhat pathetic but understandable desire to change the subject. I think that a lot of it's the silence that descends upon somebody in a moment of decent shame over what he's been involved in. But Is there any excuse for it? No, there's no moral excuse for it. I mean, they really need to make a clean breast of this. And do they do they carry any moral authority to be teaching us morality or a better way versus where we might get it elsewhere when they have these kind of glaring things going on? If you can if you can endorse if you can endorse the wholesale murder of human beings, how can you have any moral authority to teach on any subject? And that once again is is part of the scandal to the, to the church here. All the time, I get. I get um, rewarding, but ultimately uh, very sorrowful 
letters from people who will say, uh, I read your blog. I don't consider myself a Christian. I was interested in the fact you were writing about these subjects having to do with the abuse of government power and the corrupt ambitions of prosecutors and miscarriages of justice. And I see you're a conservative Christian. And I don't know how it is that you can be seeing these things and commenting about these things the way you are and be a conservative Christian because don't conservative Christians have nothing to tempt for people who are accused of crime? Don't conservative Christians believe that people who are criminals or people who are prisoners, people who are the margins of society are somehow less worthy of compassion and understanding? You know, And I'll write back and say something to the effect of, well, <laughs> I don't know whether or not the label you have fixed to me is correct, but as I read the New Testament, it seems to me that the Lord I worship made a point of reaching out to the sick, and he made a point of trying to get people to understand that, once again, in terms of ultimate things, we're all sick. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all sinful. We all do things that alienate us from God. Well, didn't he leave the ninety and nine and go find the one? Exactly. Isn't that anti-collectivist thinking? That's, that's exactly right. You know, he mm. was focused on the individual. And he was focused on ministering to the weakest and most contemptible of the individuals. And there's something else that Paul talks about. He's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to sinners of, of which I myself am chief. And for some reason, I think what has happened is that the church, speaking in the broadest sense of that expression of the evangelical community, has succumbed to the idea that if it had at the table of power, it's somehow doing something God would approve of. And, of course, God was not interested in having a, a seat at the table or one of the highest seats mm-hmm. in the synagogue. He was saying, you know, go out and, and uh, reach out to the to the lost and, and try to minister them in the, in, the, in the name of the Prince of Peace. Now, didn't Herod have a seat of power and a seat yes. of influence? He certainly did. Now, now, his goal was to kill all the babies, to possibly kill Jesus, that would rival his position of power where he was. Exactly. Mm. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, man, so much to say, Bionic. Wow. That's almost foreshadowing. Almost. Um, do you think it would be a neat idea if all of our listeners just emailed their um, favorite Christian ministries, called, do something to say, uh, what about this Eric Prince guy? Like, is he on focus your board? Focus on the family. Yeah. Focus on the family. Say, is he on your board? Mm-hmm. What do you think about the accusations made about him? What, what's your all's position on that? Well, I'd go even farther. It might be it might be prudent to uh, educate yourself on this whole thing and maybe have a extended conversation. You know, was mm-hmm. was X Y Z Christian ministry, ministry aware mm-hmm. that he was assassinating people that were trying to investigate him? You know, they would probably think you're an enemy of Christianity. They would think you're calling because you're one of them liberals. Well, that's just because that's just they got one of come. them their conservative Bibles. Where the key words of Jesus are in red, and hey, I'm actually not making this you know up. them fighting words because you know I've been a conservative my whole life, and well, I don't know what I am now. I I'm, guess a, I'm libertarian. I'm extremely, I'm extremely but, conservative. That just doesn't mean I'm Republican. Yeah, yeah. you know, because um, you believe in freedom and uh, uh, restricted rights of government, all the things they stand against. Yeah, you don't yeah. like big government. Like well, and Republicans I and, like. and and flat out, I don't like I don't like the fact when somebody believes so much in their political ideology that they begin to. Uh, co-opt the words of the Bible, such as, you know, as the foreshadowed conservative Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, but the conservative principles are in, like, more red or something. Mm-hmm. This is that, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. It's a real yeah. thing. I read about it just today. Yeah. I mean, you sound like one of them liberals. I know. It's one of them Because there's only two kinds there's, of people. 
there's people that are with us, and, and there are people that are going to get killed. Well, then there's them them freedom loving people, them them no, no, libertarians, no, no. The people with us, and then the people we're going to kill. But they're but they're right wing extremists, <laughs> and they're in that report. They're going to be hauled up. So we'll get back get to them. We got to get back to the left right paradigm, but we got to get rid of the constitutionalist people because yeah, they're, they're complicating things. It's just a piece of paper. <laughs> They're complicating things a little bit. So, um, you think it'd be a good idea? People start asking questions about Eric Prince's involvement. Very intelligent idea. You know, there are Christian talk radio shows where you could actually call in and ask them about what they think Mm -hmm. uh, about Eric Prince Mm -hmm. being in the CNP. Yeah, we need to bring in our own guy, Merv, who can Mm -hmm. tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com. Suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're way over. I always thought he was a CNP agent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pyro, maybe. Yeah. Come back tomorrow for the last segment with Will Grigg. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, wondering where I can get some uh, uh, training, uh, some law enforcement training for my faith-based organization. Oh, wait, Blackwater provides it, Bionic. Wow. I don't know if that counts as foreshadowing because you sort of answered your own question in the middle name. Yeah. Well, it was just a neat a neat little tidbit that our listeners more astute could why, look up. Why you people love that, I don't know. But it's good to be back with you folks, our Futurians out there, listening live on WENO here in the Nashville area, or all of our friends listening over the Internet or iTunes or wherever you find us. If you mm-hmm. find Smart us signals. in in, uh, in just abandoned, like, uh, CDs that are left and, <laughs> you know, bus stops yeah. and things like that. Wherever you found our information, mm-hmm. we're so glad. In fact, uh, I think they actually have some of our shows put on this Pioneer 10 satellites that actually really? go out in space. Yeah, nope. so the first contact people would have with Earthlings would have future Quake episodes play. No wonder the Klingons shot them up in Star Trek, too. That yeah, could be part of it. Yeah. But, you know, someone who's not a Klingon is our guest, Will Grigg. He was the host of the Pro Libertate radio show and blog and author of the book Liberty and Eclipse and a right smart fellow, I might say. He's using them smart words. With a more than lethal vocabulary as opposed to less than yeah, lethal. Like the LRAD equivalent. Exactly. And he he's going to be talking about recent experiences in the assault on personal freedom by the state, preparations to address it, and the current Christian response. Um, I hope you all love Will Gregg as much as Tom and I do. And, uh, this we like is, him a lot. This is our last segment. He'll give you a lot to think about. You need to give this to your other friends. But no further ado, here's Will Gregg. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Let, let, me, let me offer something that may be an explanation for this thinking. Uh, Eric Prince could be viewed, I think, as the poster boy of dominionism, a movement okay. supported by a group of high-profile and powerful evangelicals that seek to grab the reins of state power and bring in the kingdom of God by coercive force. 
and they're very clear about this. And their catchphrase, which is often used on their shows on Christian radio, I hear it all the time, is the phrase, Occupy till I come, which comes from a comment from a fictional character in a biblical parable, which was referring there, if you look at the Greek of the word, to the conduct of secular merchant business. Had absolutely nothing, that was the only point of the story. It has nothing to do as far as a spiritual mandate from Christ, as suggested by them. If they, in fact, use this as their war cry, would that make Christians an occupying force in a foreign land like Americans are in Iraq against the will of the native citizens? And if so, should we expect to be loved as much as our troops are when they are foreign invaders in a place like Iraq? It seems to be inescapable that that's, of course, the way things will work out. If you believe that somehow you can redeem people from coercion, if the proper application of potentially lethal force is the key to human redemption, then the people on the receiving end of that, and once again, that's why we need to relate to the people on the receiving end of this rather than those who are on the yeah. delivering end of it. The people on the receiving end of it are going to have the quite human reaction of hating and despising us. And that, of course, creates a situation where those who are trying to compel these people to be righteous, as they understand righteousness, will say, well, what's needed is a larger increment of the same treatment. And eventually mm -hmm. that leads to the situation where you're sending unredeemed souls into the next life. Uh, so so the beatings will continue until morale improves. Until the morals improve. Right. The, torture, the torture will continue until the morality improves. Right. Is what they're talking about here. Well, and, well, if this is the case, then let me ask you this: powerful groups that espouse this, and these are the ones with the wealth, with the big money, the big checkbooks, have, have the real force in radio. And I'm so thankful for our radio station that has given us this tiny little remote outpost here. I'm so appreciative of it. But do these powerful evangelical groups that espouse this then become the high-paid spiritual blackwater group intended to force the occupation? And, and if so, do they intend to enforce Abu Ghraib-style enforcement over those they disagree with, including fellow Christians, since they certainly did not uh, raise any concerns to date about that travesty to date? <laughs> well, there is certainly some dismal history that would validate that suspicion. I mean, these are things that have happened not within the historical memory of most people living today, but if you take a look at the way that supposedly Christian... Uh, officials treated the, the Filipino rebels after the Philippines were conquered by the United States in the 1898 war with Spain. We supposedly liberated them. They wanted to be independent, and, we, and the government in Washington did not want them to be independent, and so in the name of applied Christianity, it killed 100,000 of them. Take a look mm -hmm. what happened with the Indian tribes here in the United States. One of, my, one of my least favorite but most often invoked stories is what happened to Chief Joseph's father, Chief Joseph Benez Pierce, old Joseph, the, the father of the more famous Chief Joseph, became a Christian, which is to say that he was proselyted into the faith. And after seeing how both the government of the United States and the Christian missionaries who were acting as sort of faith-based supplements, if you will, to the, to the policy of Washington dealing with the Indians, how uh, their their perfidy, their their utter duplicity deprived the Nez Perce of their homeland and everything that they had been promised, supposedly in the name of God that they'd be permitted to keep. Old Joseph took his Bible back to the Presbyterian missionary who had baptized him and said, I want nothing to do with this because obviously you don't believe it yourself. That's the type of thing that has happened too frequently with the ambitions 
the terrestrial ambitions of people who are Christians become so deeply interwoven with the corrupting influence of government power. They become more interested in occupying in a terrestrial realm rather than doing the will of our Father in heaven. The, the point I make there at the end, though, that, and, and it may sound very conspiratorial and, and just way too paranoid to well, say... I think you're entirely justified in projecting the lines from what has been done to what could be done in terms of what would happen if the Dominionists achieved the terrestrial power that they're coveting. If, in practice, they have authorized and countenanced and tacitly supported or overtly applauded such things as Abu Ghraib right. and so-called uh, so-called extraordinary uh, interrogation techniques, then it stands to reason that those of us who would oppose their ambitions or might espouse different theological views will be looked upon as fodder for the same type of treatment that they have been willing to endorse when it's imposed upon Mohammedans. So that's another reason what why we have to relate to the person on the receiving end of treatment of this sort, because the, the supposed righteousness of those who would exercise that type of power against Muslims uh, will not immunize the rest of us as believing Christians against that same type of treatment if we happen to disagree with them and they get the power they covet. That, that's the point I'm making, I and mean, you exactly said, is that we become just somebody else that stands in their way. Whether yes. we're Muslim or whatever, we're, we're not in tune with where, quote, God is work, working or going. And if they've already shown, I mean, where you stand on things like torture reveals more about your character and about you than about the subject matter. And if they have, have basically even been silent, if there's been sort of a, a, a silent uh, uh, acceptance of it, we can certainly know that they will not stand to, to stop this kind of activity be, to be led against any one of us individually. Uh, you had an event that happened in your life, and I know we're getting toward the end of the show here, that was one of the one of the most harrowing read, re, reads uh -huh. I've ever had on the Internet about your own personal family. And I was almost afraid to get to the end of the column as I was reading it. And I know everybody else, all your other Legion of fans felt the same way, is you see this sudden blog post that goes up about children's services that show up because of someone who obviously had a vendetta against you in the neighborhood that tries to come get your children. And this, you know, what's interesting is this happens to people all over the country, all over the yeah. time, wonderful people, but if we don't experience it personally, it's out of sight, out of mind. And all we think of, if we see it on TV, is, boy, good thing it got it away from those old nasty people. Good thing those oh, sure. government people came in and saved. Now, you had an experience where, thank the Lord, you were prepared, and Indeed. you made you made some provisions uh, for things, and you took action, but you also restrained yourself. You stood up for your rights. You made it clear, but you did that in a in a polite, respectful way, and you you were able somewhat to disarm the people in that you were able to to stand for your rights for you and your family, but do it in a respectful way that didn't give them a good cause. Uh, to haul you in, not that they always need that, no, but, <laughs> but, th but things came out a little bit better. But um, I, I want people to go to your blog and read because our time is short here. I want them to read it and just you'll, you'll feel a chill go down their spine when they picture their own family and what was going through your head when you closed the door and realized they're coming back from my children. What are we going to do? And and you took actions, but the key thing was is that you mentioned about you had sort of a community planning group. Yeah. Of other very loving Christian type people. Exactly. That look out for each other. And you have sort of looked at pre planned actions 
in the event of tyrannical activities that could erupt from our government that happen all the time, that could impact anyone in your group, or even other emergencies, natural emergencies or things like that. You know, we had, for, since we had originally scheduled you, we had a group on called Christian Exodus, which is a fascinating mm-hmm. group, uh, yeah. very philosophical discussion, and they talked about uh, very articulately means of establishing independent lifestyles with minimal government invention and how communities can develop to try to minimize this tyrannical impact. Do you think we should form such community groups like what you talked about to prepare our our families and children for things like this occur? And if so, oh, how, how should we do it, and, and uh, what areas should we explore within a scope of a group like that? To the extent that it lies within the compass of our abilities, we really need to disentangle ourselves from what government provides. All of these blandishments that the government offers us are lures. They're glittering and sometimes very welcome little acts of largesse that get us addicted to and compromised in in, uh, the government scheme to make us dependent on the government. To cut as many of those connections as possible, that means we have to turn toward people of similar outlook and similar values who have the means of providing to us on a reciprocal basis. We should be willing to share, barter, exchange, uh, provide uh, just out of a sense of Christian charity and generosity in these little groups of people, these little cohorts. If you will call out assemblies, I mean, the church is supposed to be independent It's not supposed to be an interface with the world. It's not supposed to be liaising with power. It's supposed to be something that exists independent and and and, uh, separate from, in a self-contained way, separate from the objectives of the Babylon system that rules us right now. And so, to the extent that you can create little little communities of faith and commitment, that's something that's going to become very important because the system that is Babylon is breaking down right now. There's various serious talk just in the last couple of days about an effort, a coordinated effort being made by people who are holding the paper on the federal government's debt to get out of the dollar and to destroy the dollar hegemony. And the typical neocon response to this is this is a plot to destroy the value of the dollar. And the way I approach it, as I said on my radio program just this afternoon, well, good heavens, if a merchant's associate together and they say they no no longer want to accept your bad checks, that's not a plot against your bank account. That's a recognition of the fact that you simply can't be trusted and that they don't want to keep receiving your bad paper. That's what's going on. It's our government's fault and it's our fault for allowing the government to do it. And as the dollar system breaks down, we're going to find ourselves more and more dependent upon each other in ways that we don't imagine right now because we're all start, still part of the dollar nexus. That's right. And so what, hey, what Will, are you talking let, let you, It's interesting you brought up Babylon because we talked that, about that a lot on our show. Doesn't it say in Revelation 18, for those people who who you know believe in end-time prophecies and the Bible Christians, that the God says to get out of Babylon – and yep. do not be partakers ever mm-hmm. since. You know, I have looked and looked and looked in the Bible. I, I love Bible prophecy. I haven't found a single passage that has told me to meddle in Middle East politics. Yeah. I haven't found exactly. I haven't found any any of these verses of things that we often are doing in the evangelical world in this area. It 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 three things come to mind that it says regarding the end times. It says to watch, to be watchful. It says to look out for deceptive and false teaching, and it says to get out of Babylon. And I have to tell you, I don't hear a whole lot of these ministries spending a lot of time talking about how we're supposed to get out of Babylon or even what it is. And thus no, saith the Lord. To, 
<laughs> to the contrary, sure. most of them most of them are enjoining us to get more deeply involved in it by becoming more deeply admired in Middle Eastern politics and conflicts. War is one of the best ways for the government to break down any restrictions on its power, and it's the quickest solvent of guarantees of individual liberties and also the best way to conscript not only the the manpower through indentured servitude, but to conscript the, the wealth of a country and implicate it in these grand ventures. You can't be an empire abroad and a republic at home. In order to be an empire, you have to have regimentation at home in order to carry out the demented mission of regimenting other countries. And so anytime you hear one of the so-called mainstream end times type preachers or see their authors of that persuasion admonishing us to get more deeply involved in, in Middle Eastern conflicts, what they're saying is that you need to get more more fervently involved in the politics of Babylon, which, as I read it, is exactly contrary to the message of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously whatever God is doing there is insufficient, and really needs our direct... <laughs> and because he's been so in, you know, incapable of bringing about world history to bringing to its conclusion, so he, he really needs our help to make it happen, uh, obviously. Exactly. You know, and that's why that's why we got to fight Nebuchadnezzar. We got to go get the Egyptians in, or the Syrians, or whatever. You know, quick, let's go get some Mooney funding. Because, because, or get some Mooney funding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there was something else. A, a a new friend at church, Stan, shared with me at church last week. I haven't had a ch- haven't had time to fully read it, but it's a a passage out of ancient writing in the Roman times, and it was from I believe it was Julian the Apostate. Who, who became a Christian and then rescinded his belief in Christianity, became a like an emperor, a Roman emperor. Yeah. And, and, and if I remember right, you may be familiar with this writing, he complains about the Christians, talking mm-hmm. about getting out of Babylon, in that the Christians started looking after each other in their community and anybody else in their community by directly taking care of the needs within the community without using the power of the state to do it and without using the state funds or resources and he said that that was a danger if i if i remember paraphrasing because what he said was that the the roman government used their giving of goods to you know welfare state to the people as a means of controlling them and so it was a means of almost rebelling against the state back in ancient Roman times by people meeting their needs within their community rather than going to the state it exactly. sounds like to me this mindset is very very old and Christians back then sort of got it, and, and we have sort of lost it. That's exactly right. Uh, the thing that I find interesting, too, if you've read uh, Flavius Josephus about the origins of Babylon and the semi-mythical figure who created it, Nimrod, in Josephus's Antiquities, he talks about the fact that the fundamental desire of Nimrod in creating his government was to make all men dependent upon him rather than on God mm-hmm. as a way of organizing an entire society based on rebellion against God's sovereignty. That's the Babylonian, whenever you see people talk about the idea of pooling our resources together and having this collective human enterprise in order to make the world better, as better is defined by the other fallen sinful men who are running the government, you're talking about Babylon. And it's just a screaming atrocity against the Christian faith that so many people who occupy pulpits and so many people who put out books that are bought and read at Christian bookstores embrace that perspective when it comes to Middle Eastern politics and matters of warfare. Hmm. Well, you know, we're coming out of the last couple minutes of the show, but uh, one of the big stories in in the news has been regarding what's happening with with, uh, these swine flu shots and bird flu right on the heels of it. 
when I've contacted my local congressman, they have acted so funny and skittish. Uh, you know, I just wanted to get interviews with them at sites, and they're scared to even have direct citizens yeah. talk about these topics, uh, and they wonder what our motives are. Uh, evidently, they know. I mean, uh, evidently, they know their motives are suspicious, and they're they're very concerned about other people uh, looking into them. What, what do you think? In just a couple of minutes, is afoot with this massive push to scare the public with these uh, with these vaccines and their big push to, to give man, mandated shots. I, as the latter, you're dealing here with really the the leading wedge of what would become, I believe, an effort fully to socialize health care in this country if you can mandate by force of supposed law that people undergo a very dangerous inoculation of a demonstrably bad drug, then there's really nothing the government cannot do by way of mandating medical treatment or denying medical treatment. I think that's part of the agenda here. I do know that there are some really disturbing things that have happened over the last several years in terms of making the military one of the chief administrative bodies, if not the chief administrative body for dealing with the possibility of an epidemic or a pandemic. And we're not dealing with a pandemic here. H1N1 is not a pandemic. It's a, it's a nasty strain of flu, but it's nothing out of the ordinary. Here in Idaho, uh, they were making these sorrowful announcements that the vaccine isn't available, which of course is a source of great relief to me. But you've got a situation where people are already showing up with the so-called swine flu, and then they they have uh, a week or so where they're out, they're they're very sick, and then they recover and they go back to school. And usually have about ten percent at any given time, and, and the schools here who are suffering from the flu, and then they recover very quickly. Now, granted, influence of any kind is very dangerous to old people or to youngsters like our our newborn eight month old son Justice. But this is something that I think represents one of the most insidious things the government does. It's always looking. Hey, of frightening people into submitting. It's very difficult for us to imagine what the destruction of the biosphere would be like. So environmental politics has a certain limit to it in terms of selling it as an apocalyptic, mind-changing uh, scare scenario. Same thing's true with the uh, atomic devastation of the planet. We just can't really wrap our minds around it. But each of us is sick at one time or another. And if we get the idea that there are these unseen microbes against which we have no defense unless we submit to the government is something the government can really make profitable use of. And so when you combine that with the fact that we've got a homeland security mechanism here that would allow the military to set up checkpoints and to set up mandatory inoculation stations, and you've got abhorrent so-called laws like the one in Massachusetts that would essentially suspend all civil liberties protections in order to permit the police and presumably the military to compel people to accept mm -hmm. inoculation or be subject to quarantine, you've got a recipe for totalitarianism there. It's something that's very obvious. It's easily documentable. And that's one of the reasons, I suspect, why your your gallant elected leaders don't want to go mm -hmm. talking about it. I think that there have been very serious discussions about that as a, as a very immediate possible occurrence. And, and also the government has arranged that neither the administrators, the government, or the producers of the vaccine can be held liable if your health is harmed yes. due to giving these. So that, to me, is a fundamental break of, mm -hmm. of principles of law, of, of accountability. If, one, you're going to force coercion, there needs to be some means of redress or recourse mm -hmm. if you've been harmed. And uh, that, that is the definition of tyranny to me. 
I know we're we're at the end of our time here, and I know you have many things you need to get to, but I want to ask you how our listeners can get to your blog and get a bigger taste of the kind of discussion that we've had here and uh, find out how to get your book and any other kind of materials you have. Well, I appreciate that. To get to the blog, it's quite easy. The web address is freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Freedom in Our Time is one compound word, freedominourtime.blogspot.com. That takes the browser to the Pro Libertate blog, which I try to update as frequently as possible. I've really had to slack off over the last couple of months for reasons that you alluded to earlier. You mean because you were near death? You yeah. mean? You're being assaulted by the state. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been a rather crowded summer, and then in order to, <laughs> master in of order, understatement, you are. In order to get my book, I I put a hyperlink to Amazon.com at the end of every essay on Pro Libertate, so you can order it directly from Amazon.com. And then my radio show is on the Liberty News Radio Network, and there's also a link to my network uh, archive on. Uh, every blog that I publish, but you can go to libertynewsradio.com and then take a look at the hosts and look at the shows and the archives, the program is there and is broadcast live by internet and by, I think, about a dozen terrestrial stations uh, every weekday from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock Mountain Time, which is 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock Central. Mm-hmm. And you should listen to it every day. Buy a case of those books, every one of you all, and then yeah. give it to your friends. Uh, it'll be one of the best gifts you can give anybody. And then also tell them to be regular listeners to the show, uh, and uh, reading your blog regularly. We'll have that linked at futurequake.com as well. Thank you. Hey, I want to I want to apologize to you and Tom if I get to pontificate through these questions. It's just that you get me thinking so much through your yeah. writing. Uh, there are such profound questions that somebody should have challenged me a long time ago. Somebody in the church should have. We have a good friend of ours, Robert Hyde, a gentleman I've known for about 30 years, and he started turning me on to these ideas just shortly before I met you, Will. And if it wasn't for gentlemen like you all and people like Stan Monteith, uh, I don't know where I'd be thinking today. I'd, I'd, I'd be wanting to waterboard somebody today if someone has, has, hadn't uh, challenged me to stop and really ask, what would Jesus do? What, yeah. what did Jesus teach? And I just, I just love you, brother. I thank you so much for your ministry. I think Tom and I both Indeed, sir. are there. And um, you. you have um, your, your crown's pretty big in heaven. You better be doing yeah. some more working out there. You use uh, funny words cause too, because it's, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I just love to be marinated in your teaching all the time. Mm-hmm. That's my new Griggism from this interview. <laughs> I'm taking away. I was I was meaning to take notes of them, but future, you're using funny words too. I want to be I want to be marinated in godly loving teaching. It's too smart I, in this room for me. I thank Instead you. Of being barbecued in hell, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I would agree to that. But I just want to thank you to show us to to talk to us about what Jesus mm-hmm. talked about being free in the law of liberty, mm-hmm. in the law of love, and and what love and respect for everyone is. And you just keep preaching it, brother. Okay. Until Thank we you. see you again, okay? Would you please, please come back and see you soon, would you? I'll do that. Thanks oh. so much. Okay. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we're yeah. out of time. <laughs> we got to talk about one of our other favorite topics, dominionism. Yeah. No Nephilim this week, but we had dominionism. Nephilim, Rockefeller, New World Order. Okay, we got it out of the way. Yeah. Dominionism. What do you think? Um, I, I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. Really? I don't. I don't. I don't. I would rather the Lord come back and conquer the world. I figure He's probably better at it than I would be. It's not there in Acts twenty nine. 
and all the days of thy youth thou, thou shalt build a tank and roll over thine enemies and blow Is them to bits. Is that that conservative Bible you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Right. So where do you think they got the passage from the holy hand grenade of Antioch? And uh, hey, hey, folks, we're not know. we're not trying to bash conservative or liberal or whatever. We don't say much about the left because it seems pagans to be more obvious. what the pagans are going to do. Seems to be more obvious about the issues with the left, but we have issues. Well. We have issues, period. But yeah, uh, my shrink's been trying to figure it out yeah. for years. Listen to Will Grigg. Don't listen to us. Think about what he says. See if you have a piece in your mind about it. But I would recommend that you share it with other people. Listen to it. Share these thoughts. Talk about it over a cup of coffee. I also recommend you take those shows and the other ones in our archive, download them onto something hard off the internet. Because mm-hmm. one day you'll wake up and none of them will be there. They'll mm-hmm. all be gone. Yeah, but somebody with Dr. Future and Tom Bionic to a right. concentration camp. And who will be joining us in the FEMA camp is our friend Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests, are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, this is the end. This is the end. My, my friend. only friend, the yeah. end. <laughs> we'll do that on the last ever future quake. How about that? Okay, great. But there'll be one tomorrow yeah. for tomorrow's tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. It's Newsday. Bionic. I give you partial credit for that. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. And it is Friday on our normal radio broadcast, which means it is... I'll save you the time since you've... No, no, no. I got it this time. Okay, it is. Tomorrow's tremors or the future's review of today's news. You knew you didn't have it. Or today's (laughs) review of the future's news. How many years have we been doing this? Two, Ladies and gentlemen, four, it's wonderful to be with you. Carry the one. It's wonderful to be with you. We had another show of Future Quake. To square uh, this thing. We sure hope you enjoyed the show with William Grigg. Uh, we would like to try to bring in more intelligent guests with a little bit better command of the English language. Yes. But until then, we're going to have to suffice with William Grigg. Didn't you? Didn't you love how he was? He was pointing out. Um, uh, like minor English flaws, uh, English language, like writing flaws, and a couple of the things that he was talking about. And you notice, but this thing right here. And, and when did he do that? Uh, middle of the show somewhere. Okay, I just remember people being marinated in oh, marinated. certain types of teaching. Yeah, and I I'm and I mispronounced a lot of uh, the language. Yeah, I mispronounced quo warranto, and he I said quo yeah. warranto, yeah. and he said yeah quo warranto. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, you and I mispronounce stuff all the time. Yeah. Both of us. That's oh, I'm smart. We just been done with during the night. We, just, we have lots of intelligence. Intelligence. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you. Thank you for all your encouraging emails. I really appreciate it, except for all the ones that say how much they like Tom Bionic in his middle yeah. name. Except for those, I appreciate all of them. And, uh, I don't know why anybody on earth would write that in. I mean, it's funny, but it's like so... I don't know. It's like... 
Befuddles me. Yeah. Do you want a box of treasure or do you want? I'm surprised the other Revelations Radio networks haven't started doing it on their shows. They sort of like Doctor Stan Monteith as well, or you know. Doctor Stan, Stan the Man, Monteith. Constance Cumbie, (laughs) Constance Cumbie, maybe. Constance Cumbie, calling him out. (laughs) Cumbie. Well, uh, I want to tell you all who've been emailing how much how important it is to me personally. Your encouraging words and your advice, even when you have constructive criticism. And I still got to catch up with a lot of emails. And I want to apologize to y'all out there that I've gotten behind in them. I also want to mention a few people have ordered books. Um, the books have gone out the door. I had to wait for a second case of books to come in. Uh, they're on your way. Uh, but it seems like the priority mail, instead of two to three days, is taking more like five or six. So, dude, tell me about it. You should be getting them. I was just supposed checks to. Checks in the mail. I had a nine DVD set of, of, uh, uh advanced apologetics things teaching mm-hmm. and a book. And it was like, it'll be here tomorrow, five days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we say you tomorrow? Know, you know, that's Illuminati doing that. That's one of their I've top just, stated goals. I figured maybe it's cool that uh, the mailman was sitting down reading it, in which case it's like, okay, you know, you want to get down on some... You think so, huh? Yeah. think they were yeah. partaking of your Could written be. material? Yeah, going through Becca, uh, the... the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics and oh, looking at the that's interesting. Looking yeah. at Geisler's the sure. associated uh, DVDs with it. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I just want to make a few announcements to folks. Um, uh, I'm going to be uh, well. This may already be broadcast, but it'll be in their archives mm-hmm. on Radio Liberty. Yeah. Uh, coming up on the 16th, the morning of the 16th. I think it should be in their archives. So. Dr. Future make a first appearance there. I'm also going to the uh, Radio Liberty Conference out mm-hmm. in Central California, out in Santa Cruz, and I'm going to actually see Tom Horn and Will Grigg there, and Catherine Albrecht, who I'd like to ask about being on our show. That'd be great. And meet some other folks. If you get any chance to go out there, I highly recommend you try to make it if mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. I really strongly recommend that you go. Um, try th- oh, another thing, I just want to tell people that when you run out of future quick shows to listen to, once you've listened to the archive and you're waiting, yeah. bated breath, uh, uh, there's a bunch of great shows on the Revelations Radio Network. Yeah, but I you agree. know, somebody who just had me on and who's very much like us and what we do mm-hmm. is Peering into Darkness Radio, PID Radio. Yeah, yeah. And they've been having some great shows. I've just been listen- trying to get caught up on, and I was just listening to a to a lady, Miss Lindauer, they just had on, mm-hmm. who. Um, Really blew the whistle on a bunch of stuff, and the government came down and tried to make her declare it incompetent. It's a great listen. I just highly recommend. Those are great people at PID Radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just had Jeff Charlotte, uh, the author of The Family, on, and it's a great supplement. And just tell them Dr. Future sent you because a lot of you all out there came because PID Radio sent you our way. Well, we'd like to return the favor. That's That's right. Great, great programming there as well. And they're great people. They're great people, too. I just love them. They're wonderful people. Yeah. Do you have a story for us? Yeah. Here's a great one. Uh, it's just, it's like so many just awful things are going on, and it's hard to keep track of them all. Yeah, and, you know, we, we never cover them very much on this show here. I know. We usually just stay up and everything. Yeah, I know. Although we do have an upbeat show next week. No, um, excuse me. The week prior, we had an upbeat show with yes. Mike Fitzgerald. Yeah, that was a great show. That was uh, sort of upbeat. But we're going to get back to doom and gloom, thank goodness, yeah. uh, for a few weeks. And we got, don't we have some great guests coming up in the next few weeks? Huge. Big time. Huge. Big time guests. Yep. Think that, Barack Obama, but bigger. If you, yeah, <laughs> and more powerful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if there's ever time to be a Futurian and a Future Quake listener, the next month is, is it. So. Yeah, man. 
All right. right. Come on. Yeah. Um, so this is an article, sort of a little expose about Frederick uh, Mitterrand. Frederick Mitterrand. He is the... Uh, um, Did you print that in, like, light, pale ink on white paper? Uh, well, is that I actually, disappearing? I don't ink? know what happened, but I printed it in, 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 I printed it in color. I think my color cartridge is low. They'll never be able to use that in testimony against you because they'll be able to read it. You know, that helped me once in a case where I was an expert witness. <laughs> and they couldn't read my handwriting. Well, quite frankly, we weren't sure if it was in Russian or not, so we couldn't comment. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, I can attest to that, folks. His handwriting I is... I cannot divulge further. Are, I can tell you that you are a doctor just by looking at the way you write. I mean, uh, it's like... Except without the skills. Yeah. Okay, what's the story? All right. Uh, the revelations in his 2005... So, Frederick Mitterrand, just a little background. He is the Minister of Culture... Uh, and has been for quite a while in the current French, French, uh, you know, national government. Mm-hmm. He's like one of the. Was he the brother of Jacques Mitterrand, the prior president of France? Uh, I believe there is. He is from a, a very famous socialist family, but I don't believe they're actually brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, but they, they are. Were, they are related. I thought they were meteorologists. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is via the Telegraph, by the way. So I didn't dream any of this. British stuff. newspaper. Yes. The revelations in his 2005 autobiography, The Bad Life have come back to haunt Mr. Mitterrand after he emerged as one of the most vociferous defenders of Roman Polanski, the film director currently detained in Switzerland in connection with an outstanding conviction for unlawful sexual intercourse with a 13-year-old girl in the U.S. in 1977. In his book, Mr. Mitterrand, uh, the nephew of the late socialist president, Francois Mitterrand, uh, wrote, I got into the habit of paying for boys, all these rituals of the market for use, the slave market excites me nor- enormously. One could judge this abominable spectacle from a moral standpoint. Uh, another quote. One could judge this abominable spectacle from a moral standpoint, but it pleases me beyond the reasonable. And this is the culture, current culture minister in France. Uh, curiously, there was little outcry when the book was published in 2005. However, Mr. Mitterrand's tastes were brought to the fore on Monday by Marine Le Pen, daughter of the far-right national front leader Jean-Marie Le Pen on a political chat show. Miss Le Pen read out a passage in which, in which Mr. Mitterrand wrote, The profusion of very attractive and immediately available young boys puts me in a state of desire that I no longer need to hinder nor hide, as I know that this will not, that I will not be refused. Um, you know what? It's not only that they're like just quietly, shamefully doing it in the darkness, he They're actually about bragging this. about it he, in the press. In his well, in his press, he wrote about it in an autobiography called "The Bad Life." Yeah. <laughs> I know, and people just kind of go. Like I talked to people, you know, there was various people in town that I knew, and I would talk, try and talk to them about this, and show them the article, and they'd be like, "That doesn't exist. You're mm-hmm. crazy." So, um, yeah, um, yeah, this guy's bad. That's what I'll do. I just. I, that's it. He's just bad. He's well, so bad, and he's in charge. And, and nobody's doing anything about it. And in fact, Carlo, Carla Bruni, who's the wife of Sarkozy, mm-hmm. was the one who recommended him for the cabinet. I know. And they all think he's the cat's meow. Wow. Well, if... Uh, if now, any, now, and also, this is not deviant behavior between two consenting adults behind no, closed doors. This is, uh, this is paying this is for actually, sex for underage boys. Yeah, this is a... a, 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 a prison like a sex slave ring yes. of young boys and he is mm-hmm. excited by the fact that it's a taboo uh, sex slave mm-hmm. thing that he's getting these people that's as decadent that was the worst stuff we would ever say the worst trash in our society yeah 
until recently, and here's a guy in well, office like writing right, about it. Right out talking about it, yeah. Um, well, and there's there are some some indications that that goes on here in this country as well. I was thinking the same doors. thing. In, anybody, our, in our leadership. Yeah, if anybody hasn't seen, uh, well, of course, the Bohemian Grove documentaries, uh, both done by Alex Jones, but also you might check out franklincase.com, um, and that is that is definitely not the most pleasant of things, but it was a documentary that was done by the uh, done about the 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 Republican National Convention's number one fundraiser in the late 80s who uh was uh on the side running it appeared to be running a a uh, uh a sexual prostitution a prostitution ring for young boys for the uh, uh the national leadership both in his party and and I think mm-hmm. the Democrat party anybody who was in Washington uh would kind of go to him for these type of things mm-hmm. and um a couple of senators went in literally days before the thing was to be aired and um, had the place raided and, um, you know, pushed their uh, weight around to have the thing not on the air. So the only existing copy was actually made available just a couple of years ago, and now it's on the Internet, so you can see for free. So if you go to franklincase.com, uh, I believe that's it, uh, you can look it out, and it's just horrific. It I've, is horrific. I wanted to do a story here on Future yeah. Quick about the Franklin cover-up just to give people mm-hmm. an understanding of how decadent. Yeah. Including our conservative leadership, mm-hmm. including the people who speak, will be invited into churches and speak and things like that mm-hmm. are all part of it. And do you, do you hear a lot of Christian radio shows no, talking about zero? Well, let's expose this. Let's expose no, this. Zero. To, you know, you know who did expose well, that kind of zero. stuff? Us. God. Well, us. Yeah. But also <laughs> in yeah, I think it's Ezekiel eight, I believe. Yeah. Where he took Ezekiel in and said, "Let me show you what's going on with your holy people, your priests in the temple, your leadership," mm-hmm. and showed all the detestable practices. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was even as bad as what you read, but it was detestable to God. What well, was boy, going on? Boy, I can't think of anything more detestable. Well, you know what? Do you know who Hunter S. Thompson is? Very well, the Gonzo journalist. Oh, yeah, I've, I've I've written and read about him extensively. Well-known cultural figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to Bohemian Grove, mm-hmm. and. He found evidence he was writing a, a book on on a pedophilia ring run out of Bohemian Grove. Oh, not surprised and in the least. And spoke to a bunch of people about it. And right when just he announced everybody he was doing it, suddenly he suicided himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was talking to his wife on the phone. She said she, he had been in great spirits, had a lot of projects working on. Mm-hmm. He said, hold on just a second, went and heard a muffled sound. Mm-hmm. And his his son was on the other end of the house and heard some kind of muffled sound. Mm-hmm. And then came in, and he was just dead. And the, the officials there let him tamper with the body and do all this other kind of stuff. The guns mm-hmm. somehow didn't match what was there. Yeah. But uh, well, that doesn't surprise me. He's been uh, Hunter S. Thompson has been uh, for all of his you know drug seeking behavior and other uh, what I would consider problematic behavior. He's been very good at uncovering things. I, did you ever see the thing where he went undercover with the Hell's Angel for, Angels for three years? And tried to show their... Um, I knew that he did it. I yeah. knew of it. Yeah. yeah, he did that, trying to show both their lifestyle and I think kind of what they were doing as far as supporting themselves, which was running drugs right. for right. different organizations. And they um, they tried to kill him. And, right. You know, right. So. And, uh, you know, David Carradine. Uh, he was doing a expose on, on secret, secret societies yep. because his dad, John Carradine, who's one of the ma- most famous actors in all of Hollywood ever, Mm-hmm. was very active in the occult group, the OTO, 
I've heard that. Uh, yes. Alistair Crowley's group mm-hmm. and went over to, what was it, Bangkok? Bangkok. To, to, to get data on this and died in some kind of weird, yeah, ritualistic he, way. Yeah, he hung himself. Um, it had some other things going on there that yeah, were he, sort of sick. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. But were, but were metaphysically impossible to kind of get it all himself. done. Himself. Yeah. And uh, his family is trying to get an independent inquiry done mm-hmm. of what's going on, so... Uh, I guess the motto of all this, it's one thing just to sort of say all this and just drop it in people's laps. The question is, what do you do with it, just like in other shows? And the thing is, do everything you can to thoroughly vet the people you get behind. Particularly, yeah. you know, with your votes or your other kind of things like mm-hmm. this. Um, just because somebody's famous and well-connected doesn't mean they're safe. I don't know. I mean, I feel like sometimes dark horses are at least as safe choices anymore, you know, in political yeah. things, mm-hmm. as these well-connected people. Yeah. I always just vote for the person who's, I don't know, not an incumbent, generally. <laughs> yeah. what it comes right <laughs> down to, almost. Well, I've got a story to share. Okay, hit us. Okay. Uh, now, this is a retro story. This is sort of throwback to the early days of future Quakeotech, okay? Right on. Not conspiracy stuff, not real heavy. This goes in file under weird, okay? okay hit it's it. under weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have some prophetic implications, but um, this is the Donegal Grotto statue took on human form. This was out of Belfast Telegraph uh, newspaper of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. It says, visitors to a remote grotto claimed... A statue wept and crosses appeared and disappeared in the night sky this week. A group of 14 people who had gathered at the statue of the Virgin Mary in a rocky outcrop near the town of Dunglo, uh, county of Donegal, on Tuesday night were transfixed as they watched the phenomenon, which they said lasted almost an hour. It was a crazy evening. It was absolutely amazing. I'm still on emotional high. All but one person seemed to see the same thing. Recall James Boyle from Ardera. He was at the site with his wife, Margaret, and their children. The Carytown Shrine is visited by thousands of pilgrims annually after first becoming a subject of a religious apparition 70 years ago. James explained how the group had been drawn there last Tuesday night because of a claim by Ballyfermot-based faith healer, Joel Coleman, that the Virgin Mary had told him in a channeled message that she would appear at the shrine on September 29th at 8 p.m. We went into the shelter facing the rock and at a few minutes to eight, someone suggested we should start the rosary. We had no sooner started than someone shouted, Look up! And to the left of the cross, another cross appeared in the sky. And as soon as it disappeared, another one appeared. It lasted about ten minutes, he explained. Then, this is when it gets weird. Then people began <laughs> noticing that the white statue with its red heart had begun changing color and form. She appeared to have a human face. And her head turned. And she looked at people. She sat down, or she looked down at the children who were at the front, he said. One woman explained how the statue began crying. She went up to dry the tears. The tears were running down from her eyes, she told Highland Radio. Speaking to the Irish Independent from his Dublin home, Mr. Coleman said that the Virgin Mary, who had been appearing to him for many years, had communicated to him that she would make herself known at Carytown on September 29th. He passed on the details of that message to a small group of people who attended a healing service organized by him in Dunglow last June. He added that a lot of priests in Donegal did not believe he was doing his healing work for the love of God. Dunglow parish priest Father Seamus Meehan said last night that there had been talk about the Carytown Grotto for years, but I would be kind of skeptical about it myself, he added. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, you know, we hear pictures of faces on a, you know, bologna sandwich and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But what I found interesting about this is that there was a statue that became animated, mm. according to their testimony of lots of people. Yeah. And it made me think of the story about the um, the image of the beast and how the false prophet was able to put a breath into the image of the beast and was able to talk and communicate. Mm. And they say... I was just reading a story about this, that the ancient priest used to be able to do that, they say, to statues of the ancient gods in Rome, well. you know, the, in the yeah. inner mysteries, mm-hmm. that they could actually do something and that they would become animated, at least the people's understanding. Whether it was a drug-inducing with the people, I don't know. But there may be a link here of some kind of activity of being able to seemingly animate inanimate objects. And you think about things like golems, you know, that the Jewish Kabbalah... Mysticism talked about animated things, and there may be some forbidden capability there that may be reemerging. Interesting. Or it could be just a weird story. Well, uh, it's hard to it's hard to argue with multiple witnesses. At, you know, right, something that right. went on. That's even right. If it's, even if it was some combination of strange lights and a you know mass psychosis or something. But something but, but it on. had to have been a mass psychosis because everybody yes. saw the statue. Yeah, it's either mass psychosis or something. Really happened, or maybe a combination of the mm-hmm. two. Or man, I'm guessing that's not the last time. A bit of uncooked potato. A bit of undercooked potato. Yep. Okay. You got anything else? All right. Oh yeah, so much here. It's like it's all such a mess. Um, do you want to hear about the Guardian being prevented from reporting parliamentary proceedings? On uh, they can't report who did it, what they did, or why they're being um, told not to report it. What's the or, subject area about? Um, that's it. They can't even tell you. Can't even tell you that. Okay. What's the other story? The other story is uh, that how no truly independent research can be legally conducted on many of the critical questions involved in GMO crops now. Like a toss-up, man. Complete mystery. Yeah, let's or... go for a complete mystery. Okay. The Guardian has been prevented from reporting parliamentary proceedings on legal grounds, which appear to call into question privileges guaranteeing free speech established under the 1688 Bill of Rights. I seem to cover a lot of English stuff these days. I don't know why. Uh, you know. Um, 1688. Wow. Yeah. It's, we're, all, it's, we're almost back before the Magna Carta. You know, mm-hmm. It's like a couple hundred years. That's in the early days of future quake. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, today's published common orders papers contain a question to be answered by a minister later this week. The, the Guardian is prevented from identi- identifying the MP who asked the question... Uh, what the question is, uh, which minister might answer it, which minister might be able to answer it, or where the question is to be found, as well as the subject matter. The Guardian is also forbidden from telling its readers why the paper is prevented for the first time in memory from reporting Parliament. Uh, Legal obstacles which cannot be identified involve proceedings which cannot be mentioned on behalf of a client who must remain secret. Behalf of a client? Yes. So somebody, yeah, somebody's suing them to keep all this stuff secret. Uh, um, there's a uh, media lawyer that's it's, uh, uh, mm-hmm. famous for that that's actually involved in it. Um, the only fact the Guardian can report is that this case involves the London solicitor, solicitors, which is uh, English for lawyers, mm-hmm. Carter Ruck, who specialized in suing the media for clients who include individuals or global corporations. The Guardian has vowed urgently to go to court to overturn the gag on its reporting. 
The editor of The Guardian, Alan uh, Rusbridger, said, The media laws in this country increasingly place newspapers in a Kafkaesque world in which we cannot tell the public anything about the information which is being suppressed, nor the proceedings which suppress it. It is doubly menacing when those restraints include the reporting of a parliamentary of a parliament of parliament itself. The media lawyer Jeffrey Robertson QC said Lord Denning ruled in the 1970s that whatever comments are made in parliament can be reported in newspapers without fear of contempt. So, um, yep, but they're saying that that's not the case. Um, they're saying you want to report something. We're telling you you can't report it. You can't tell who reported it, who, why they mm. did, and it's on behalf of a client who can't be named. So mm. it's best not even to talk about it at all, ever. Let's just change mm-hmm. the subject. The best thing is to try to hurry up and get a story up before they can get around to doing it. What's yeah. the cat's out of the bag? Yeah, well, they, they should have went faster on that one, I guess. Like I've heard many times, if you're afraid that they're going to come after you as a whistleblower, mm-hmm. it's better to get the story out early Don't because like that can be disarming once the cat's out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Could be. So. There you have it. Give that to all of you out there. If you have some information to share with us, we'll get it out there. You know, another reason on several levels for independent media. One is people set on stories. You know, the Monica Lewinsky thing, Newsweek set on that story, mm-hmm. you know, for certain reasons similar to that. Mm-hmm. And then it took Drudge, an independent mm-hmm. guy, to release it. Uh, so, so you don't know where they have been targeted if you can decentralize Media outlets, it's hard for them to stop the story getting out. Yeah. And secondly, independent media people are much more likely to act in the public interest, I believe. Yeah. Well, we've seen that even here in the with the L.A. Times. They had a story that would have wrecked somebody's uh, presidential campaigning, mm-hmm. but they chose not to um, reveal it. Right. It was, very, it was very weird. I saw some of the photos, which later got mm-hmm. taken down. So It takes a lot of money to buy us off the... We haven't seen that first dollar yet, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we, we just got a few minutes, so I've got a quick one here. All right. uh, Christian Zionists back United Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty. Amid Arab-Jewish tension surrounding the Temple Mount, 5,000 uh, Christian pilgrims from some 80 countries arrive at the capital for the biblical Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the status of Jerusalem as Israel's capital is once again being assailed, Christian Embassy Director Heading says. This week, the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, never heard of them, <clears throat> is marking the 30th consecutive year in which Christians from all corners of the globe have ascended to Jerusalem to celebrate the biblical Feast of Tabernacles. Head of Lithuanian uh, Heredi Stream, I don't know what that means, uh, Heredi Stream uh, tells President Perez, according to Halakha, Jews are forbidden from going to the Temple Mount. Uh, beyond the halakhic aspect, it could lead to bloodshed. Uh, Perez says in response, your position must be heard. I don't know what that's about. Um, more than 5,000 Christian pilgrims from over 80 nations arrived in Jerusalem in recent days to take part in this week-long celebration, making it once again Israel's largest annual tourist event and the largest solidarity mission in, to Israel this year. On Tuesday, during the normal Jerusalem march, feast pilgrims, in, were in national costumes, while others wore specially designed Jerusalem United T-shirts to convey Christian support for United Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty. The status of Jerusalem as Israel's capital is once again being assailed, even to the ludicrous point of denying the 3,000-year-old Jewish connection to the city. The Christian embassy was founded 30 years ago on the principle of marching global support for United Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty, and we have never left that mandate. 
uh, referring to the recent Arab riots that erupted amid rumors that a group of Jewish extremists were planning to visit the Temple Mount. Uh, Henning stated that Israeli authorities have shown great responsibility in handling detentions. The way Israel has responded to the recent scenes involving crowds of agitators trying to deny the rights of others to visit Jerusalem's holy sites only reinforces our confidence in Israel as the proper guardians of this city to ensure freedom of access to all people. The world is constantly declaring that Israel should adhere to human rights, parity, and greater access to mo- of movement, but it's absolutely silent when Israel tries to ensure all of these. Uh, Christians, we call on those who see Jerusalem as a wholly important city to reject this double standard. So it says, at this, our 30th feast, we're reaffirming our commitment to stand with the Jewish people and their deep spiritual attachment to Jerusalem and working in our home countries for diplomatic recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's unquestioned capital. Sorry I read that quick. I know we're out of time. Um, Go on. That's more Christian Zionist. That's, all, that's always been the thing that's sort of perplexed Getting me. something going. Yeah. Let's get fired up. Fired up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and that would be an excellent show. I hope this staff. Boy. Maybe we can get Robert Hyde to come back or something Wow, like that. very interesting. Yeah. Because uh, we need to take a long, hard look because things are going to get real nasty over there real soon. Yeah, well, they do a lot of, the, uh, you know, through the ADL and these other mm-hmm. organizations, they do a lot of mm-hmm. very strange things. We'll uh, be talking about that soon. Right. Speaking of nasty, though, Marv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we really got to go. Let's get out of here. Come back next week for a very interesting guest. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake.